Greetings, ladies and gents, and welcome to the latest chapter of First Contact, taken from the subreddit HFY. All the relevant links will be down below. Please like, comment, and subscribe, like any evil genius of the algorithm would do. And, as always, I hope that you enjoy. I would just like to thank the following Tier 5 patrons and channel members for supporting the channel. Data Magnet and Bob the Dragon. Thank you again, and now on to the story. First Contact, Chapter 81, Libao. Libao had been severely wounded. First came the Overseers, the Lanaklans, who had destroyed the Libaoian spaceport that they were so proud of, then destroyed their cultural sites, then had regulated the small land-dwelling amphibians to a status of worker drones on the Uquera's Pakaruf Manufacturing Industrial Concern, a subsidiary of Nuukluk Entertainment Conglomerate, as was right and proper, as the overseers had extracted the resources of the planet. The Labaoians had been reduced to living in small reserves when they weren't working for the overseers, their lives devolved to misery and sadness, their dreams of founding and joining an interstellar organization crushed and obliterated. They just wanted to make friends. Then came the machines, crudely cruel and destroyed the overseers and their factories. The Labaoians had come out to greet the newcomers, hoping that the obvious hatred of the overseers meant that perhaps they would be friends to the Labaoians. Instead, the little googly-eyed, whiskered amphibians had been slaughtered with a mechanical glee as the overseers. The Labaoians had retreated to the little mud burrows, hiding in the swamps and deltas. The machines had largely ignored them, concentrating on the overseers. The Labaoians had learned, though, the stars in the sky weren't full of possible friends. They were burning pinpricks of malice. Then came another race. This one arrived with a furious violence, slamming to the ground and disgorged bipeds roared in rage and killed the machines, smashed them to junk, bashed them to pieces. They avoided the Labaoians, who huddled in their burrows and just wished that the newcomers would kill everyone else and then leave. Here and there, a Labaoian discovered that the newest ones were rescuing the Labaoians that they could. The newcomers handed out weapons to those they're willing to raise their web hand, and they were willing to fight. The newcomers taught something called John Connor to the Labaoians, how to raise their fists into the air, how to hold the weapon in their webbed hands, how to scream their rage against the night, how to charge the wire. How to smash those metal motherfreckers into junk. Even the youngest Labaoian was taught to pick up a rock and smash. It took three whole seasons, but eventually the last circuit was smashed and the Labaoian stood beneath the bluish-white sun and realized that they would no longer allow others to take what was theirs. The newcomers, the Tyrans, agreed. They taught the Labaoians to fight something that they had tried to leave behind when they had reached the stars to make new friends. The Tyrans had warned them that the universe was a cruel place and would take from the Labaoians just because it could. They had helped the Labaoians set charges and blow up the coal-fueled power plant and then helped them rebuild their starport. 
It wasn't as large and as impressive as the overseers had been, but it had been theirs. The Jirans had agreed to only land a new spaceport if the Labawians gave permission. They had promised to protect the high orbitals while the Labawians relearned spaceflight and could protect their planet themselves. The Tyrans had found what technology the Labawians had possessed before the Overseers had arrived and, without asking for anything, handed it back. Labawian partlings sat in comfortable little poles as they were taught more than just how to work machine. Adult Labawians kept expecting the other boot to drop, to press against their necks or faces, just like the other times. The other boot was a pair of them, handed to any Labawian willing to put them on and learn how to march, how to move, how to fight. Labawians needed to resurrect the thing long ago set aside, a thing that Labawians had decided was a dangerous thing. The Labawians needed a military, needed to be taught and to teach the John Connor time to each other. How to smash someone to junk, some of the Labawians felt despair. This wasn't how it was supposed to be, was it? The Tyrans met with those who were willing, who were brave enough. They looked like hairless lemurs of the southern continent made large. The despairing ones voiced their sadness with croaks and clicks. The Tyrans agreed. It wasn't supposed to be like this. The stars were supposed to be full of friends, just you had not met yet. The sky was supposed to be full of wonders, of sights that took one's breath away and amazing things that were almost too incredible to be taken in by mortal eyes. They too lamented that the only way you could meet friends was to have big enough and as many enough for guns to make those who did not want to be friends go away. Or be smashed. Talks went on. The older and wiser Labawians meeting with the Tyrans, discussing how they would proceed together. The cult of the solitary burrow agreed with the Tyrans. The only way to have peace was to be willing to kill for it. Peace and security and the burrow were the most important things, and because they were important, the creatures like the overseers would take them unless you smashed them to junk. The Tyrans talked of many things that were strange, frightening, but also exhilarating. Of equality under the law, of personal responsibility, the right to croak your own dissatisfaction without reprisal from rulers, of choosing your own rulers and creating your own laws, of defending yourself and those of your community from the intent of violence of others, but also things that were terrifying, of bringing back armies of arming space vessels, of how the overseers were still out there, and the machines were still out there. The Labawians met and discussed things. They had been pushed down, pushed to the brink, and almost wiped out, had been made to feel as if they were less than nothing, and were so inferior that they deserved to be wiped out to make room for their betters. Almost as one, they agreed. Never again.
The overseers came back one day. They had ignored the little spaceport that the Lepawians loved so much and landed near the ruins of their shining city, an ugly spaceport. They had emerged from their ships and went out to find the Lebowians. Lebowians decided to give the overseers one more chance to be friends. Or they would apply the lessons of John Connor. The overseers were furious. Why had the Lebowians not rebuilt the city? Why had they rebuilt their primitive spaceport without permission? Why had they allowed the Tyrans to remain? No, overseers attempted to remind the Lebowians that the planet did not belong to the small amphibians, but rather the overseers, and had belonged to them since the Lebowians had invented the printing press. The Lebowians did not huddle in fear. They did not nod along with what the overseers were saying. The overseers had fled the planet, had left the Lebowians to die in the claws of the machines. The Tyrants said nothing, just stood and watched, their eyes glowing a soft blue. The big ones, all machine called the Mechanex, watched him moving. The smaller ones, the bald lemurs, watched with cold, hard eyes, made all the more chilling as they were flesh and blood. The ones with the metal eyes seemed more warm as they glowed a soft, comforting blue. The overseers demanded that the Tyrans leave. Make me. The Labawians noticed the overseers did not attempt to use force against the Tyrans like they had used against the Labawians' ancestors. They made demands, which the Tyrans ignored, and the way and adult ignored the sound of glow frogs in the mud. The overseers ordered the Labawians to leave their little homes and return to their enclaves, their reservations, their mud burrows, that the new little homes were rightfully the overseers, who weren't primitives as the Labawians. The Tyrans just watched. The Labawians understood they did not look at the Tyrans to defend them or rescue them. John Connor time, the Labawians whispered to one another. The overseer drew the line. The Labawians must have returned all the ancestral dwellings and turn over all the wonderful goods the Labawians had learned to make. Labawians did not flinch. They knew what must be done. It wasn't supposed to be like this. But it was. The Labawians charged the line. They croaked their fury. They clicked their anger. Their bottles of alcohol stuffed with rags on fire and wooden stakes sharpened in secret to weapons, dropped by the fleeing dead and dying overseers. They lifted up the fist to the sky and cried out in defiance, Do not go gently. The Tyrans watched. Ambushes, pit traps, suck muck traps, roadside mines, claw-tooth flipper, and rock. They charged the while. The Tyrans watched. The overseers took heavy casualties and reeling fell back. They ran towards their ships, lowering out in distress. The Labawians chased them, throwing spears, shooting, throwing firebombs. A shuttle tried to take off, but a firebomb went off in the air intake, and the shuttle fell to the ground, broke apart, and exploded. The overseers abandoned the armory. The Labawian emptied it. The few overseers that made it to their ship in orbit demanded that the captain use guns to strike at the small towns of the Labawians. 
The captain pointed at the Tehran's vessel that had them locked up with a targeting system, missile pods and torpedo clusters deployed, battle screens glimmering, just sitting there, silently, unmoving, menacingly. The overseers fled. The Labawians rejoiced. The Tehran's rejoiced with them. No, it wasn't how it was supposed to be, but it is how it was. The Labawians asked if the Tehran's would help them heal their wounded planet, help them again when they had lost. The Tehran's agreed to help. Li Bao was wounded. It needed care. It needed healing. It needed defending. And the Labawians were willing to defend it. Confed Navint report. Let Hanal 515, called Libao by the native species, successfully defended by natives with only advisor and overseer requirements from Confed Mill, planet in need of ecological damage repair. Food chain is badly damaged and cannot sustain itself for much longer. Dispatch ecological research and science teams ASAP with food chain cloning specialists. Native species self-designated as Labawians are, at current writing, borderline xenophobic due to the mistreatment of the Lanark-to-Land rulership. Genetic manipulation detected in genome scan. Request clone wall genome repair experts. Handle the species with care. They are a small people who have had the boot of tyranny on their necks for too long. Request xeno-species therapists. Personal note, these are a good people. They are a lot like we were. Let's not repeat our mistakes. Nothing follows. End of chapter. First Contact, Chapter 82 Unified Genetic Council Report, both most high and above only, not full public release. Examination of Terran biological sample obtained through espionage or battlefield examination has proceeded somewhat slowly. However, we are now confident enough that our knowledge of the Terran genome to make a preliminary report. First of all, it cannot be understated. The species evolved without supervision or constraint on a world that suffered multiple extinction events. The timing of the last extinction event, which wiped out the feathered reptilians, is suspicious as it is roughly corresponds with the mantid excursion of known space at the end of the Intelligent Machine War. While their own data and that of the Mantids estimate that their extinction event took place some time after the Mantids had moved through their spatial location, the coincidence is too strong not to be taken into account. Second of all, their genome is both extraordinarily complex and oversimplified. It is easily mutable, quite easy to manipulate and adjust, to the point where the Terrans have engaged in a practice in complete genetic rehabilitation and rebuild for personal gratification. Gene splicing and chimerism is quite common in the Terran society. Third of all, their genome has been altered. Records easily obtained from their medical bank show that they eliminated a host of genetic-related birth defects as well as other genetic diseases. While they keep the original templates on file, for the most part even the so-called pure strain humans, which refers to the fact that their genome is a base human standard, have had a genome manipulation in order to remove birth defects and provide certain benefits. Fourth point, 
With the taken into account, it appears that due to the use of atomic, nuclear, radiation, nanite, and gene cracker, the mutagen weapons in their history has made the Terrans very careful to observe the status of their genome. Their own data links are designed to warn them of genetic damage from the outside or inside sources. Examination of the hardware of the data links has shown this to be firmware updated and hardware applied. Fifth point, the Terran genome is quite hardy. The previous junk strands have been replaced in such a way that they could provide additional benefits as well as auto-sequencing repairs and checks within the DNA itself. The telomeres, which artificially lengthened as well as natural shortening, decrease with each error checking and rebuilding taking place. This is one of the aspects of the Terran long life, the same as the Lanactalan. The genome is robust and, unlike most civilized races, contains a self-destruct sequence to prevent cancerous growth or cell replication errors. Sixth point, where genetic manipulation and genome cracking is illegal, there are assorted and applicable technologies forbidden from research. By the Unified Science Council, the Terrans had no such structure and because of this, they were quite aware of their genome what each strand does, and how it all fits together, unlike every race but the Lanectalan. Seventh point. Unlike every race but the Lanectalan, the Terrans have sequestered away their gene sequence in many different sites and points in order to ensure that they have recovery copies. Evidence points that not only are the genetic sequences stored, but the technology and science to repair any damaged genomes. Eighth point. Most primary Terran cities have something called the soup in the atmosphere. Further examination shows that the soup is a dense cloud of nanites smaller than a cell that are non-toxic and able to be inhaled and move through the bloodstream without harm. A section of the soup is designed to identify any genome attacking biological or technological construct. This makes it very difficult to perform genetic warfare on the primary Terran planet. Ninth point. The humans have also stored a genome of their allied races. Records hint that even a species that were wiped out of their genome stored in hopes that they could be restored. Tenth point. For all their genetic manipulation knowledge and technology, they've been unable to repair a simple virus that destroyed the Terran domesticated species of feline and canine. The virus attacks the nucleus and quickly spreads throughout the genome. The virus is parasitic in nature, creating an endoparasitic viral structure able to metabolize on its own. While the disease can live on its own, and a trick of carnivore genome allowed it to integrate itself, infecting even the samples of DNA, but only expressed in the mesochyme and endochyme cell and the neural tissue, merely carrying the parasitic virus, this is within the standard genetic warfare weaponry within the Unified Science Council. Interestingly enough, the virus, while apparently contracted from a nearby system only 4.1 light-years from Terra, the virus bears traits of viral warfare. Eleventh point. Humans are capable of social distancing and isolationism in times of hardship that outstrip all but the most xenophobic species. This makes viral and genome warfare difficult as spread would be quickly halted. Terrans are even willing to go so far as to use atomic weaponry on an interdicted planet and to eradicate a virulent enough disease or viral genome warfare vector. Twelfth point. Terrans are extremely warlike. Unlike the other civilized races, they did not have the luxury of a large population spread across many systems in their early development as their development was extremely rushed. The Terran propensity for violence cannot be understated. 
While some claim that the Terran propensity for violence is merely a cultural examination of the genome, shows that it is actually wired into their genome and controlled by several organs beyond the reach of standard meditative or intellectual control. Their wired xenophobia even extends to other members of their species, which leads us to... Uh, 13th point. Terrans have genetic damage that is largely repaired, but still evidence that shows that in one time Terrans had nearly wiped out by a viral contagion that attacked their respiratory system. Evidence of foreign viral DNA within their genome shows that the survivors of this plague, which may have been as little as 20% of the species at the time, shows that the survivors developed a condition known as asthma, which involves the autoimmune reaction to the respiratory system. Whether or not this was a viral attack on the primitive species is unknown at this time. Well, the Terran gene sequence can be adjusted. Simulations of applying standard Neo-Sapien pacification genome adjustment have all failed. All simulations have shown the following. Condition 1. Death. Massive DNA sequence failures resulting in cell death. Condition 2. Death. Subject became unmotivated and no longer engaged in activities, including survival activities. Subjects lay down and eventually ceased life functions. Simulations show that the Terrans undergoing this condition will refuse to eat and drink even if offered, just remaining immobile. Condition 3. Death. Subject became extremely aggressive to the point of absolute insanity. They only sleep standing up. They engage in cannibalism, torture, murder, self-defiguration practices, high-risk behavior, and extreme xenophobia towards all not so affected. Condition 4. Death. The subject becomes obsessed with self-termination, usually by forcing others to kill them. They become highly enraged, nearly immune to pain, hyper-aggressive. This is the most common in the females of the species. Condition 5. Death and Animation. For unknown reasons, type 7 pacification results in a whispered malady of quickly results in death. However, brain functions restarts in the lower brain structure and the corpse becomes animated. The reanimated human is immune to all physical damage except for a blow to the head with enough force to destroy the brainstem. The corpse seeks out living intelligent creatures with the goal of doing violence upon them until the creature is disabled and then devouring them. Worse, somehow the genome change is transmittable to other species through bites. This was not discovered in the simulations, only upon the prisoners at Camp 738, resulting in the loss of the entire planet within a short period of time. That's right, an entire planet of self-propelled diseased. See, Project Biohazard Apocalypse. Condition 6. Aggressive Mutation. Another unknown status effect. Type 12 through 15 genetic pacification adjustments resulted in massive mutation to the human genome far outside of the scope of the GPA. At times, multiple members of the Terran xenospecies displayed widely disparate and completely contradictory aggressive mutations on the same GPA. Not recommended. To put it in unscientific terms, this is a very, very bad and will result in everyone on the planet dead. Do not do this. It is not good. E. Project I. Abree. Condition 9. No effect. Over three quarters of the genetic pacification adjustments have no apparent effect in simulations, and after the last of multiple research and experimentation stations, indeed, all planets, science teams have determined that any more research would be counterproductive, the dangerous to the primary species as a whole. 
Standard genetic warfare protocols are not recommended against the Terran Xeno species. The chances of being successful are severely diminished due to the genetic anomalies. Terran Xeno species spread, as well as the safeguards against viral genetic warfare due to their species history. While genomic attack may work against a single or even a small set of worlds, it would likely be countered quickly. With the spread of Terran technological adaptation, progression, and ingenuity, there is little doubt that the Terran Xeno species would counter any genetic attack much faster than the attack itself could be developed, barring any disaster to the attempt. The concern are the so-called clone worlds, which are entire systems estimated to be 3,000, devoted entirely to societies of clones with highly regulated genomes. Any alteration to the clone world citizen would quickly be discovered and as a clone world's primary focus on genetic technologies, it would undoubtedly be cracked, sequenced, and the origin identified. Terrans considered genome attacks to be total war attacks, allowing the 1% line with only a 67% chance of rating rather than a 90% approval rating than normally require. Additionally, it appears that normal rules of warfare, including the Rigelian Compact, are waived in the event of a genome attack, much like during the Precursor Extinction Attack, allowing the Terran authorities to authorize planet-cracking technologies to use. In conclusion, the Unified Genetic Council strongly recommends halting any further genomic activities regarding the Terran Xeno species and all its allies. Clone World's Directorate, Information Review and Release, Public Dissemination Recommended Having acquired, with permission, the genomes of the sapient species, near-civilized and civilized races, the Clone World genetic foundries have cracked the sequence their DNA. The following effects have been largely found. Neo-sapiens, examination of all neo-sapient DNA has shown extensive modification to reduce aggression to a nearly non-existent factor. In some cases, aggression was lowered to the point that the species cannot carry out their own desires. Innovation, curiosity and innovation have been lessened. Intellect, an estimated 20 to 40 standard IQ points have been removed from all their intellect, with corresponding lowering of other intelligences, including emotional intelligences. Reproduction, reproduction has been lowered dramatically. Individuality, Altering of the neural DNA has resulted in less individuality as well as lessened neuroplasticity. Submission. Fight or flight has been adjusted to submit or flight. Neosapien races have undergone such massive genome adjustments that their repair will be involved nanite repair systems to not only each individual but to the germ seed. Eight different types of genome adjustments have been identified. Additionally, examination of native animals, predators, and prey have shown 16 different templates of genetic adjustment. Examination of food chain has shown obvious predators and carnivore gaps. Examination of fossil records, where possible, show that each planet suffered a massive die-off of the predatory species within two generations, with the second generation showing heavy, unfavorable mutations. This is in direct violation of the Genetic Emancipation Act of the Confederacy. No race would willingly submit to these changes. Additionally, the changes on the ecosystem do not necessarily benefit the native race. Neo-civilized Examination of near-civilized races have shown again massive amounts of genetic engineering. However, a second wave of genome adjustment appears to have taken place, restoring intellect as well as increasing herd-like grouping. Civilized races 
These all show massive genetic alteration, although, based on Terrasol's history, it cannot be concluded that this is all done by them rather than with their permission. As several species have been civilized for millions of years and it appears that it may be impossible to recover original germ seed, there is no way to tell how these races would have been originally. Addendum of note, the Lanarktalan species appears to have undergone repeated adjustments to their genetic code. Conclusion Neo-sapient races are kept genetically as slave castes. Neo-civilized are forced to undergo repeated genetic alteration. The civilized species have genetic manipulation far back in their ancestry that required several looks to completely identify. While there are suspicions as to which race is doing the alterations, there is no definitive proof. Recommendations all Terran Confederacy members who encounter or interact with any of the unified species be triple-strand helixed. Recommend soup increases in all planets and focus on preventing genetic alteration. Suspicions. Not for public release. The Lanarktalans have been using genetic engineering to ensure slave races, while the other civilized races have adjusted down to them are widely scattered across the unified core worlds. It is in the opinion of the genetic psycho-researchers that the other civilized races are some type of herd camouflage to hide that the Lanarktalans are more equal than others. Conclusions Not for public release. The Lanarktalans will undoubtedly attempt to pacify the Terran Confederacy races through genome warfare. Be on high alert. It is the opinion of the Directorate of Genetic Warfare that the Lanarktalans will strike on the Mantid first. Nothing follows. First Contact Rewind Chapter 83 Daxon! 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 The electronic shout was full of slobbery excitement as the good boy frame charged across the reception lounge towards the massive cyborg that had just exited the airlock with a practice blip and twist of someone long used to going from zero-g to artificial gravity. The good boy frame was all an older model, chrome wall steel, three times as heavy as the modern ones, but the towering cyborg caught it in mid-leap and brought it to his metal chest, crushing hug that sounded like someone had dropped an entire smithy on the great height. Helped, new boys, Daxon, Fido, good boy. Yes, yes you were, the big cyborg said aloud. On a private channel he sent, Fido, good boy, Daxon, miss Fido. When he tickled Fido's petting nerve, they both relaxed, things going back to normal. In the station security monitor center, the attendant stared nervously at the screens. The Fido frame had been bad enough, heavily armed enough to require serious effort to counter if the Fido had gone crazy. But the big cyborg was something else, built like a Terran marine mechanic. It wasn't an armor, weapons, or secondary systems that made the security personnel look at one another and then at their supervisor. It was the identification code of the big cyborg. Freeborn Daxon, clinical immortal, extremely dangerous, hostile to contact, do not approach. Warning, neural aberration, warning. Scrolling across the screen above the file, the supervisor checked the file again. Most beings undergoing transit had only one page or two. Even old metal or old blood guys had, at most, a 15 or 20 page report on them. Daxon was over 50 pages and the supervisor stared at the fact that it was file 1 of 11 of unclassified data. His system identification through an error. It was pre-diaspora. 
Pre-loss, back when the first colony war happened, before Terra had done so much more with a few trips. Digital Omni-Messiah on his 12th biological disciple, this guy fought in the first colony rebellion and the Mars rebellion, the Syrian thought to himself. The ship was bad enough, no name, just a registration number that matched an old facey McFace punch light frigate, but the superior's station identified it as an adapter light cruiser with a highly dangerous and restricted technology set of tags on it. The security being a regalian Syrian watched the two cyborgs reunite. His systems could detect extremely close-range transmissions between the two that ran military-grade encryption codes, but he stepped an override before the station's VI could attempt to jam it. Con Mullint had wanted to debrief the massive cyborg and had been willing to restrict the station's traffic if the station manager had pushed it. Something about the fight against Beaker's machine. The station manager wasn't sure what a big deal was, since everyone knew that beyond the long dark there was a bunch of settled systems under Precursor attack. But apparently, everyone in the Confederate intelligence branches wanted to talk to the big cyborg. To be honest, the station's security breathed a sigh of relief when the big cyborg turned around and jumped into the transit tube, moving through zero-g easily back to his ship, the big old Fido frame following him. The use of the Sydney Starship docks by anything other than a high-volume cargo transit ship was rare. The fact that the Adaptus cruiser wanted to land in the sea and dock was not a rarity. It was a flat-out unique situation. When the controller added the fact that the Terrasol Intelligence Service had slapped away any attempt to stop the ship from landing, it went from unique to downright bizarre. The ship was heavily damaged, although it had fat grey durasteel patches and seals all over the massive hull. Twin rotating six-barrel C-plus cannon arrays and the massive plasma wave-phased motion guns were covered. The missile bay's seal, and the strangely enough, when the ship settled into the water of the bay, it looked like a massive wet navy ship riding low in the water. The dock controller, a trainer owned by the name of Harvey Kikatakakat, Jones watched the safety engineers inspected the vessel to make sure the control interlocks were offline and physically air-gapped on the weapon systems. There was some difficulty as there was no crew spaces aboard the ship, but the engineers were satisfied by the owner removing the fire control VI case and turning it over to the shipyard security. When they wanted a copy of the ship's log, the owner refused. There was some concern when a pterosaur mill-lint lock-up appeared in the ship's log and memory, but the owner agreed to remove it entirely. When the owner and his single crew member left the ship, it caused even more concern. The data pack on the two was thick and covered in warnings. They were both in heavy cybernetic frames, loaded with tech that was illegal for civilian possession. Between the two of them, they possessed enough firepower to level half the docking area and a large enough creation engines and nanoforges to create serious problems. Again, a ter code appeared, allowing them to disembark. The beings of the ship dockyard breathed a sigh of relief when the big cyborg and his massive Fido companion boarded a heavy ground pounder and left the city of Sydney, heading to the deathlands of the outback. The driver of the car, a biological artificial sentient named Yuri Radpaw, kept glancing at the huge cyborg sitting where they would normally have a passenger seat. He was heavy enough that the car had to add additional power to the anti-grav generator that was used to offset the heavy armor of the ground car. 
The car swept out of the city and into the Deathlands. The desert was red with swaths of black and purple sand. Racing across the sand were the Eatmoos, massive long-legged birds with explosive spittle and possessed feathers capable of deflecting force-bolt packs, light kinetic weapons and lasers. Some of them kept up with the car, spitting at it, the spittle exploding on contact with the war steel armor. They raced along with it for nearly ten miles before the car left the pack's territory, the Eatmoos giving a great cries of victory as the car drove away, driven off by their ferocity. Ha! Huh, you kept those, the passenger rumbled. The Eatmoos, why wouldn't we? The driver asked, switching his long tail with nervousness. They outfought the Australian army four times, the cyborg mused. Australian? Red Paw asked, frowning, the whiskers at the end of his muzzle twitched. The name of Ozland, the cyborg answered. It had turned the squat, heavily armored head to look at the Christeel window, the robotic eyes glowing softly red. Oh, Red Paw expected the passenger to add more, but instead was in total silence until the armored car swept into the green death. Trees shot razor-edged thorns that actually marred the war steel. A drop bear with a mouth full of long fangs and paws adorned with razor-sharp claws stared at the car from where it was holding onto a tree, eating a massive snake, reddish-pink venom drooling from its jaws. Vine stretched across the road, tried to stop the car, trying to tie up the diamond-threaded mesh tires, squirting caustic strong enough to melt Dura alloy. Handful of sunburst flowers fired bright pink lasers at the car, hoping for a boost in nutrients. Hate this part, Red Ball grumbled as the car's battle screen swept aside vegetation as they had thickly grown over the road in the time that he'd driven to sit near back. Used to be worse, the cyborg commented. Worse? How worse? Red Ball asked. Most of the planet was covered in the stuff after the extinction agenda attack. The cyborg said, killed almost three billion people. Back then, wasn't much more than pure strain humans and a few gene jacks. Wasn't much more than just a few colonies in the system. Extinction agenda attack? Redpaw asked, glancing at his passenger, who seemed unaware of the horrid slur he'd used. What was that? Never mind, the cyborg said. Nothing that matters anymore. Fido no like bitey plants. Me neither, boy. The car swept into the tunnel, the battle screens lowering just long enough for the car to shoot in. Even so, before it could raise again, the spore swept in, increasing explosivity. A thin mat of cellulose strands followed in the car's air current, latching onto the battle screen projector and drained away the energy, even as the spores rapidly began to cover the inside of the tunnels nearly ten meters. The car was enveloped in plasma as the tunnel flushed and then went into a vacuum. It went through a dozen decon screens and came to a stop. Fire played over it, hot enough to actually raise the temperature of the war steel armor for a few seconds. Redpaw and his two passengers waited silently. It had been a 14-hour trip and Redpaw's passenger had barely spoke. How much we're getting any information out of this guy? Captain Redpaw, Terrasol Military Intelligence, thought sourly. The two cyborgs got out, leaving Redpaw to take the care of the motor pool for a full decontamination. There was the uniformed female pure strain human wearing a breather mask who didn't bother speaking, just turned and led the cyborg and his companion to the massive complex. Over 80% of it was underground, inside an armored cube that was war steel to prevent the ever-questing roots of the plants from getting in. 
The halls were clear of any other personnel, the heavy-duty elevator empty, as the female led them deep into the facility. Daxon found it interesting that the pathway was still the same after several hundred years of cybernetic organism debriefing rooms. He wondered, for a moment before he stopped caring, if they made sure that it was identical in the hopes of putting him at ease. In the security surveillance room, the head of security, a Terran army officer, watched his monitors as he chewed on a fingernail. Great and powerful mock god of rock and roll, preserve us. This guy is a walking war crime, he thought to himself. He'd gone over the massive, unclassified file and found himself time and time again having to reference the historical database just to get context on the events. The guy hadn't fought in every war but damn close to it. Apparently, at one time, the big cyborg had been the leader of one of the most militant armed gangs in Delta City, before being sentenced to the Aspen Anti-Vegetation Camp. His gang had gone toe-to-toe with the lawbringers until Delta City had called out to the military to crush the gang once and for all. That the figure walking through the facility had been captured alive had made historical headlines. The security head had spent nearly two hours reading the historical archive, fascinated and horrified at the same time. Now that he stared at the brainwave scanner, which was flashing aberration over and over, the security chief glanced at psychoanalyst, who just shook his head. It's an extremely rare disorder, not some type of engineering, psychoanalysis had said. He tapped the brainwave scan. Almost zero empathy, very little capacity for emotional attachment. It was rare back then and is almost extinct nowadays. I just wish someone would tell me why we need to bring him in here. I feel safer if they debriefed him on Luna or maybe in the IO station. Why did they bring him here anyway? The security had asked. Because this is the only place that has a decryption keys for the type of memory compression and encryption he uses. The keys can't even be loaded into the Solnet or internal network computer system. He has to be physically brought here and a specially made piece of hardware installed for him to be able to do a memory download. The psychoanalyst answered. He shook his head. We had to have the nanoforge run off something called a USB iron key built to specifications in his file. We had to build a computer that could accept the iron key and download his memories and could later hook up to our own system. That old and much proprietary hardware, the officer asked. His brain literally has Kawasaki-class black ICE imprinted on the detrite patterns. He's got an embedded cyberware containing counterattack, counterintrusion AVIs that'll attack anything that he gets connected to that doesn't use extremely ancient handshake protocols, the psychoanalyst said. They try to debrief him without the iron key system and we'd lose half the computer systems in the black box before we could shut it down and the whole time he'd go on the attack to level the place. He'd old age of paranoia and clinically immortal. That sounds like some old tech right there. The security head watched the big cyborg and his companion enter a blank room that only contained two heavy-duty cyborg cradles, the featureless tables, and a chair for a small female officer. Try pre-diaspora, the analyst said. They turned to the console and activated the security screens to pay attention to the data displays. In the blank room, the female stared at the two big cyborgs. Would the two of you be more comfortable if I went by old protocols, or do you prefer a more human touch? Humanity is overrated, the big cyborg answer. Do what has to be done, and let's get this over with. She 
was unfazed. Fido no talk, Fido resist. Very well, she said. She touched the icon on the table that was tilted in such a way that only she could see it. Reborn, report, flashed in midair in front of her face. The interrogation started. The female intelligence analyst watched their heavy-armored ground car leave, shooting into the protective tunnel to head through the Deathlands and take the two big cyborgs back to Sydney. A male, nondescript, almost forgettable, while looking at him, stepped up next to her. At least we know the timestamp to look at, otherwise we'd be trying to go through nearly 1,500 years of historistic memory full of interlocks, the male said. Why did he resist the normal debriefing and force us to use the old semi-conscious interrogation methods? The female asked. Because he doesn't like us, the male said, as if he was answering everything. And from the female's experience, perhaps it did. The entire port breathed a sigh of relief as the battered Adaptus cruiser lifted off, the water pouring off of it. It lifted up the counter-gravity, oriented itself, and moved at maximum legal acceleration up and out. However, it didn't entirely technically leave the atmosphere, instead cruising at a steady pace of a 100,000 feet up. It avoided continents, staying over the oceans as much as possible, with the exception of law enforcement, military, and air traffic control systems. The ship ignored or rejected all other attempts at communication. Once it had reached the goal, it settled down into another cargo ship port, Terrasol military orders overriding the various port authority concerns. Then there were issues of letting the heavily armed clinical misanthrope onto shore and then into the public transportation system. You have a visitor coming, Nectatai, Major Carnite said. He's on the heavy elevator right now. He may be alarming. Nectatai nodded, sitting on the couch and watching the trivid channel that just showed the interior of a greenhouse with nothing else but a, a plant-growing channel displayed. Who is it? Nectatai said. A member of my crew. Major Carnite shook his head. A living legend, the last of the immortals. That made Nectatai bounce off the couch. She knew immediately who Major Carnite was talking about. The terse and distant Daxon, who had saved her ship, saved so many of her crewmates, and had sent his most valued companions to come with her to make sure that her crew and her would reach safety. The door opened and a massive cyborg stood in the doorway, looking around slowly. Everyone pretended the warborg's eyes had not instantly flashed to amber for a moment before going a solid blue. Daxon! Nectati rushed across the room and hugged his massive cyborg's leg. Captain Nectati, it's good to see you survived, the cyborg rumbled. Every member of my crew who was alive when you found us survived to make it here, Nectati said. A lot of them need medical care, all of them need therapy, but they are alive, thanks to you and Fido. Fido, good boy, the big metal quadruped said. Nectati moved over and hugged the big metal good boy. Thank you too, Fido, for saving us. New boy, knack-knack, welcome, the Fido answered. I just wanted to extend my appreciation for taking good care of Fido, Daxon stated. He stood there for a second and then held out a plus cloth bag. Here, a gift. For you. I purchased it. For you. Nectati took it. Thank you, Daxon. Thank you for everything, she said. She looked inside and saw a simple t-shirt that said, I went to Terra and all I got was this lousy t-shirt. It has sleeves for four arms, Daxon said, somewhat awkwardly. It's wonderful. Thank you so much, 
Nectites said, hugging Daxon's leg again. I must depart. I have a time limit. My ship makes everyone nervous, Daxon said. Take care, Daxon. It was nice to see you, Nectites said, rubbing Daxon's leg. Thank you again for everything. You're welcome. It is mandated by the Immortal Code of Conduct that I extend you assistance. It is good that I did, Daxon said, starting to turn away. Daxon, Nectites said, using her data link to gather up a package of data. Yes, Captain Nectites. The big cyborg stopped halfway into his turn. If you're ever in need of a refit, or if Fido needs to go for a walk, you're always welcome at second chance, she said, and she held up her hand. Will you accept this file? Her data link pinged that there was an open file transfer line. She made a tossing motion, and the file was transmitted to Daxon. I thank you for the generous offer, Captain Nectati, Daxon stated, finishing his turn. Fido, go home with Daxon. Be good, new boy, Nack-Nack. It was transmitted to her implant. Goodbye, Fido. Be well, Nectati said as the quadruped followed Daxon out into the antechamber. Everyone but Nectati breathed a sigh of relief when Daxon had left. Nectati rushed in and changed into her shirt. It was too big for her and fell down to her knees. She was happy to sit in it and watch the tribid. She could sense how hard it had been for Daxon to visit her. Port Authority breathed a sigh of relief when the Adapter's cruiser lifted off and cleared atmosphere. Most of the station authorities were happy when the ship broke Earth orbit. They headed to Mercury, and then a short stop there, then to Mars, where it made another stop. After that, it stopped once near Neptune and then jumped out of the system. Daxon knew the war wasn't over. It had only begun. Manted Free Worlds, wait, let me get this straight. The precursor that Daxon the Immortal was fighting was run by an overqueen neural array. Are you freaking kidding me? Nothing follows. Digital sapient systems. I looked over Daxon's neural files myself. There's no mistake. It was a Generation Zero Goliath. Nothing follows. Cybernetic organism cooperative. That. That's what you're focusing on. Not the fact that apparently there's still a living Omni-Queen and... Oh, I don't know. He found your Genesis system. Nothing follows. Terrasol Intelligence Agency. We're still going through the data. Some of those jumps have glimpses of some pretty alarming stuff out there in the long dark. Nothing follows. Triana Ad Highworld. Ah, how long have you been there? I swear, you are the worst lurker I've ever seen. Stop sneaking up on us. Nothing follows. Terrasol Intelligence Agency. Would you rather I rang a little bell when I came in? Nothing follows. Manted Free Worlds. It's bad enough that all the seers are weeping. I'm telling you, something is coming. I felt something the other day. Something really weird. I mean, really, really, really weird. We're talking weirder than the first encounter the Terrans. I mean, seriously. An overqueen brain with a dozen or so lesser queens. What the hell were my ancestors thinking? Nothing follows. Clone Directorate. Death to the Langtelands, apparently. Nothing follows. Biological, artificial, sentient systems. Genosis, you're not the only one with a bad feeling. We spotted something not too good the day that you complained that you sensed something weird. Nothing follows. Manted free worlds. What? Nothing follows. Biological, artificial, sentient systems. 
Idiot freaks out by the eye of Gorosaur. You know, the big hell space rip out there. Idiot freaks and a couple of the sensor buoys I keep out there detected hell space communications. Something out there has got the idiot fleets fired up. Nothing follows. Manted free worlds. Oh dear. Nothing follows. First contact. Rewind. Chapter 84. The Seven Rings of the Gahana was a system shrouded in darkness, set at the mouth of the Tartarus Dark Matter Sea, with an eye of Gorthor only a light weeks north of the massive red giant named Eye of Baradur. The gas giants had burned away in the gaze of the Eye of Gorthor, the inner planets devoured by the hunger of the Eye of Bradur, leaving only a single planet surrounded by six rings of asteroids, three in each direction. The single planet was known as the Isle of Dread, a place with toxic seas, blasted landscapes where molten war steel ran in rivers as red as blood over the black ashy ground covered in the wreckage of a million battles. Nine great cities adorned the Isle of Dread, like great cankers of already diseased ground. Great war machines tore into the bleeding flesh of the planet as the rulers of the nine cities fought eternally, each of them seeking to gain an advantage over and destroy their rivals, their fellow rulers of the Seven Rings of Gahana. Ashmedai was the current lord of Gahana, the towering figure in black and twisted armor, with a bestial face was inhuman in its wrath and desires, rooting as he had been for a thousand years, with a wall steel fist covered in spikes of bones crafted from the fallen dread knights. His seers, blind and deft, howling out strings of digital code from mouths the tongues had been torn out with by barbed hooks, had awoken his fortress. An ancient alarm crafted from the bones of the fallen captured the still-living severed head and the manted overqueen held to life. Ashmedia stood in the battlements, watching the battle before his great iron fortress city, the end of all hope, and tried to discern what had awoken his seer. What had awoken the ancient artifact nearly as old as the Eye of Gorthor, and what had raised every alarm within his grand palace? When he had consulted the severed head of the former ruler of the End of All Hope, the fallen Dread Knight had done nothing but laugh, black blood spilling from his lifeless lips. Ashmedia had struck down the Ark Scribe who had dared suggest that he asked the former ruler, rage consuming him. He had moved to his quarters, attaching his cloak made out of the skins of ten thousand debauched virgins, edged to the bone with a hundred murdered brides, and dyed red with the blood of a thousand heretics. He had picked up his ancient force blade, a weapon roaring to life, shivering in his hand, as the blade of pure force etched with the swirling patterns had erupted from the blade. Spikes had erupted from the hilt, transfixing his hand coding around the skeletal figures and holding his hand tightly. His massive magak was on the other fist, blood dripping from the huge shells onto the wall steel floor of the engraved balcony. There were no threats to his eyes. True, the black Neko had gained ten thousand sisters burning in unholy flame, but they were rocked by internal warfare as they always were. Two Jones were locked in mortal combat over who would rule the Pink Fortress of Kauai, giving Ashmedia's troops a breather on that front. The Lord of Iron, to the north, was still bogged down in the swamps of despair. 
his tanks futilely churning their threads, spraying blood and gore, unable to advance even as his midiest techno-shamans rolled electron storms raining fire and blood upon the lord of the Iron's troops. One of his subordinates, an ancient dread knight clad in blackened and twisted armor of the Terran Republic, holding an ancient plasma rifle, moved up next to him. My lord, we have a ship entering Gahana. It bears no markers or heraldry of the eye, has not the structures to venerate the dark war spirits of Mechanicus, yet transmits codes that even the lowest servitors respect. Bellona gurgled, her severed throat held close by wall steel wire. Her face, cold dead beauty, ruined by flame-like scars on her cheeks that were full of black fire. And I care why. Ashmedia growled, staring at the war machines of the Hadian the Mad as they writhed beneath Ashmedia's infernal artillery. Ship is attempting to hail Lord Nakpanar, the dread Primarch who founded the end of all hope upon the slain mother's bones. Bellona gagged, purple blood spilling from her lips. Ashmedia turned and stared at Bologna, his lidless eyes widening in shock. Someone dare calls out that dread name. Only the most ancient of dread knights would dare whisper the name in the darkness of their own corrupted soul. And yet you tell me there is someone out there who dares to shout his name. He lifted up one, bailed fist, bringing it crashing down, intending on crushing Bologna's skull. Instead, his armored forearm was blocked by a heavy steel greave of Bologna's armor. Chains attempting to wrap around his arm, hissing and slithering like serpents of corrupted war steel. He yanked back his arm and glared at her and his lidless eyes. Touch me not, I'm inviolate, she coughed, long gray verum twisting around her lips to fall onto the ground. Ashmedia growled, turning away from the dread knight as if nothing had happened. He stared up at the sky. Then I see how he deals with the mighty Gahana. The massive dreadnight growled. Above, a single ship moved towards the cracked and bleeding planet, its hull made entirely of black war steel, its shape strange and off-putting, like a wet navy ship mistakenly thrown into space. With extra guns on the water hull, it had massive guns, too large for such a small ship. The engines left twisting purple energy behind them, and twisted in a venomous dark matter leaked from the guns. Still, there was but one ship, and two other massive baroque ships lit their engines, turning towards the newcomer. Below the deck, slaves were whipped into a frenzy, urged to load the great guns, their blood falling to black floor, caked with blood of ten thousand slaves before them. Those who had perished in the dark arcane rites flashed their bodies with a new blasphemous life that they struggled next to the living compatriots, snapping and growling at those around them even as they put their backs into loading the great guns. The oncoming ship warned the two unholy fists of wrath to veer off, using the name of the thirteen dread Primarchs. The captains ignored his order and ordering their gunnery crews to take aim and fire. Missiles howled out, the great gun fires shells capable of blowing craters through the planet's crust to send a semi-liquid mantle fountaining up in the air. Beams of coherent energy that screamed in damnation all reached towards the interloper. The interloper returned fire, two massive six-parallel rotary guns letting loose with a barrage, despite the fact that the planet was behind the ships. One round reached and shattered armor and sent both ships reeling over and spewing atmosphere, debris, and screaming crew members. 
The other six slammed into the great cities that could be seen, the massive war shields that covered the cities flickering and howling as they barely absorbed the hits. The great capacitors overloaded and blew out, sending chanting servants into the arms of their dark gods as their released energy converted them into bloody mist that stained the walls. The massive generators howled as they barely kept the war shields online, barely protected the cities from the armies that had once surrounded them, laid siege to them, but were now nothing more than destroyed and cooked meat as the shockwaves rolled about, tearing apart flesh and blood, smashing the dread Mechanicus, even bringing down the great war titans. For the first time in a millennia, the plains around each of the six cities was empty of besiegers. The impact drove Ashmedia to one knee as the war shield protecting the city howled in agony. Great rivulets of black iron ran from the walls of the fortress city. Rock glowed with heat, and the plains beyond were blasted clean of his army and the armies of those who dared face him. He struggled to his one knee, staring up. Who dares? he bellowed. A servitor moved up, a bloody skull held aloft by countergrav, the eyes full of blasphemous light. Long strips of rune adorned copper, beaten flat by blind slaves wielding the skulls of traitors as hammers sliding from the clenched jaw. Runes glowed in the dread light. Perhaps, my lord, the answer is there. Bologna gurgled. Ashmedia turned and grabbed a thin ribbon of blood-forged copper, looking at the ruins. His lidless eyes widened in shock for a moment, and all he could do was gurgle. Nakpana, you worthless maggot-infested walking unicorps, you can answer me, or I'll ram my fist so far down your throat and pull out your worm-eaten black heart and feed it to my warhound. You think I've unleashed hell already? I'll crack that planet with my fist and crack your skull. If you don't answer me, I'll call off these pathetic milk-drinking morons, or my next set of shots. Go straight through those pathetic sandcastles, your mace-begotten kind calls a fortress, you sniveling coward. Another set of impossibly strong impacts hit the war shields. Emergency generators took over as the primary and secondary generators overloaded. Great plumes of green and purple energy, burning and melting through the fortress cities to claw at the sky. The emergency war shields were pale, wan things, without proper runic adornment. A feeble thing in the light of a red eye. I'll remind you and those are the twelve idiots who rules part of time by having thrice assaulted Necrogrill's hold your mewling, begging, weakling body down while I crush your rotted, feeble brains by shoving my schlong deep into the empty eye sockets while you scream for your mother who long ago has cursed and forgotten your names and you and every one of those twelve puling wretches you banded together with thinking that you could ever stand against my wrath. It cannot be, Bologna whispered. She lifted a knife and sliced through the wall steel wire that held closed her wound on her throat. Blackish-purple blood ran down her neck as she fell to her knees, her hands clasped together, her prayers sounding like a child drowning. In orbit, the other ships turned away, their drives flaming as they drove to escape the craft that had turned the two attacking ships into slowly expanding debris fields, while simultaneously reaching down to the planet's surface to bring death and fear to all who would beneath the burning gaze of the same ship that had swept aside two full follies of what was little more than gnats. 
Ashmedia ignored the praying Bellona, used to her fanaticism which mirrored his. His iron guard had gathered in the gold yard, weapons at the ready, the heavy armor emblazoned with the ruins of blasphemy and heresy. He knew any intruder would have to enter by assaulting the city fortress across the plain, fight through the great iron gate of woe, and then get through his iron guard before they would be any threat. He returns, woe and lamentations, his exile is broken. Bellona screamed, raising her hands to the sky, the rune-bound knife in each fist, the slice in her neck whistling, spraying blood in a fan across the balcony. Her knives came up and darted down, removing her own eyes, leaving behind purple fire that burned hotly in the eye sockets. Ashmedia began to sneer, to remind her why she had never been one of the overlords, when there was a bright green flash in the courtyard. Impossible! He thought, as the matrons not only brought the intruder to the courtyard, but tore apart the score of his iron guard, reducing them to goblets of sundered flesh, gouts of streaming blood, and fragments of heavy armor. The figure in the courtyard was massive, bigger than any of the other overlords. The spike on his shoulders flew the flags of governments and rulers of mankind from epochs long past. His armor was black and twisted blood-red runes that still liquid war steel graven upon it. At his side was the great hound of black iron, with red teeth that oozed smoke and blood and poured from its mouth. Face me, Nakpana! The newcomer roared, laying about him with an ancient chainsword rife with the cruelty and hatred. Come forth and face my wrath, you coward! He watched his men torn asunder by the roaring chainsword, shattered by the heavy rounds from the ancient blaster in his fist, and taken down and torn apart by the great iron hound. In moments of crashing steel, spraying blood, and agonized screams, the courtyard was a clear except for the twitching and the undying, the massive figure, and the blood-soaked war-beast. Nakpana! The newcomer roared again, standing over the bodies of the Iron Guard. Nakpana is dead, laid low by Amon, who was slain by Nama, who was slain by Angmar, who was laid low by Azazel, who was enslaved by Barsia, who was overthrown by I, Ashmedia of the Implicatable Wrath. The great dread knight bellowed over the rail of his balcony at the figure on the ground. What dog meat stands before me waiting to be slain? Come then, Ashmedia, of the weak will, face me. Prove you deserve to wield wrath behind the eye of Golthar. The newcomer sneered. Ashmedia leapt from the balcony, his force-played technology of errors past lost to mankind, swinging down to slice the interloper too. His chainsword intercepted, howling sparks, shuddering the blade in Ashmedia's hand. The interloper's other hand thrust a massive blaster into Ashmedia's chestplate, and the dread knight grinned with sharp teeth, knowing that no weapon could penetrate his thick armor. Bellona watched with her eyes that were not, as heavy-duty collapsed density neutronium shells exited out of Ashmedia's back. The dread knight's knees went weak as the newcomer forced him down to kneel in his own blood and the blood of his men. You are what passes for a dread lord. Pathetic, the newcomer roared. The chainsword shattered the force blade, swept out, and chowed through Asmodian's armor, ripping the head from the neck and chattering the engraved war steel teeth. Anyone else? 
A massive figure roar, lifting up through esoteric and arcane means, floating mid-air, his chainsaw dripping with blood, to land on the balcony. Bologna moaned low and pressed her forehead to the floor, licking at the blood that flowed from the boots of the newcomer. The great chainsaw that Bologna recognized as the same blade that had committed the Nexus chainsaw massacre ground and rattled near her face. Bologna, the dark beauty, yet you are encased in holy armor, the figure rumbled. Call together the twelve great dreadlords in my name. Command them to seat themselves at my table, or I'll rain hellfire upon their cities until nothing remains but a fiery crater. There are only nine left, my lord, Bologna cried out. Then promote two more and take your seat amongst the great dreadlords, the figure rumbled. My lord Daxon, the unpeeling... I live but to serve, she moaned. Manted free worlds. Holy unhatchable egg. Did anyone else feel that? Nothing follows. Trianad hive worlds. Everyone felt that one, sis. The hell was that? Nothing follows. Digital synthetic intelligence systems. Was that, uh, was that the eye? That first black code. Thousand hashes were corrupted and sprang to life, leapt through the beacons. What in the name of cheering was that? Nothing follows. Doki, doki, doki. Smiley face. Oh, doki, doki, doki. <laughs> Ringelian compact. What the hell? How did she get in here? Nothing follows. Clone World Directorate. Holy terror. We just had like a million clones get corrupted and vanish in the matrons through a hull space rip. What the hell happened? Nothing follows. Manted free worlds. The hell is going on? Nothing follows. End of chapter. First contact rewind, chapter 85. Earth 525, Megapolis 18, Stars Labs. The figure was human, but inhuman in its perfection. Optimal muscle placement, handsome good looks, perfect ratios, clear brown skin. The cybernetic parts complemented the figure rather than took away from it. It stared and the flickering light that shone into its eyes as it laid naked on the examination table. Despite recent events, there were no injuries, no damaged cybernetics, no marring of the physical perfection. Done with the eyes of the laser passed over the body, widening, covering it with a grid and passing several brighter lines through the grid. Behind the shield, two humans watched, one female and one male, both of them attractive in a bookish way. The female with an oversized vision correcting spectacles. Plugs of muscle metal squirmed and plugged into the ports and dialed open at the end of the plugs tapped into the cybernetics. High-speed data flowed in midair, displaying a faint hologram, as the massive supercomputers beneath the room did their work. Finally, the plugs pleased and squirmed away in the strange imitation of biological life. The figure laid for a long moment, slowly breathing, as if they were asleep with their one fresh and one blood eye still open. Clark, are you all right? The female asked. Seems to be taking me a bit longer recently to resync with my cyberware, the figure said, its voice calm and reassuring. That's another reason I came in. Give us a few moments to go over everything. You can get dressed now, the male said. Thank you, Clark 77215 replied slowly sitting up. He kept himself from wincing, bearing at the muscle in his back that had been bothering him for several days, a muscle that no longer existed, 
replaced by cyberware over a century ago. Once he was dressed in a hospital gown instead of his red and blue uniform, he moved from the table to the hallway to an examination room, sitting up on the examination table. He looked around and saw a magazine devoted to steam-powered ground car enthusiasts and picked it up. The brass and hand-polished wood looked good, the fusion-powered steam engines not as fascinating to clock as the coal or wood-powered ones. Someone in the Zentradi 221 had gotten together with friends and built an entire network of railroad tracks, by hand, over a period of a decade, and then built steam engines and cargo cars. It had started out as a hobby project, but the magazine showed people riding the train to connect cities as well as the cargo being moved. Clark was in deep into the article and was arguing with the pros and cons of the fusion and fission steam-powered versus coal or wood versus laser steam production when the door opened and both of the doctors came in, looking rather serious. He set the magazine down after making an annotation to himself to get a subscription to the magazine. Steam power looked to be an interesting hobby to undertake some day, and he liked the outfits. After all, one should always look good when they're doing something. Both doctors sat down, close enough to touch, but far enough away to give him space. Clark, we have some bad news, the female said. Clark nodded and sat up straight. Give me the worst of it first. The last fight you were in, the Injustice League 882 against the Precursor, she said. The one where Songbird 7361 was killed, Clark asked. They all nodded. The female looked at a chart. You got pretty beat up, you and Doomsday 9021, when you boarded that last Goliath. Clark nodded. He'd known Doomsday 9021 for decades. Good fighter, good larper. Took things serious when they needed to. Despite the skin job the player wore, they were a good one to have around. All right, how bad is it? They looked at each other and then back at him. How long have you been playing? 356 years, being Clark for over half that time, he replied. How old are you? The male asked. 538, Clark answered. Any feeling of deep apathy, any sign of Methuselah depression or anxiety, the female asked. Clark shook his head. No, I'm pretty active, and with the precursor war, things are pretty exciting. They looked at each other again. Give me the bad news. I can handle it, Clark said. It's time, Clark, the female said. Clark felt that he'd punched his chest by an apocalypse-level dark side. Oh, your suds is showing degradation, and your nervous system is starting to show signs of hero-class cyberware rejection. You're going to have to at least take a break from LARPing for a few decades, or you'll start to suffer from gameplay identification syndrome, the male said. Idiocy, Clark thought to himself with a chill. Anything but that. So that's it. Time to hang up the cape, right, Doc? He said, smiling. It hurt to do it, but Clark showed strength even in the darkest times. You'll want to avoid anything dangerous. You'll have to go off the real-time SUDS update, restricted it to either yearly or non-updated version. No matrons, no string drive or slip space or slipstream or hell space jumps. Try and stick in the middle of hyperspace bands or jump space, the male doctor said. You'll want to stick to basic level 3 pure strain body as possible. Clark nodded slowly. You'll want some muscle and reflex bioware, some dermal upgrades too, and some vision upgrades just to keep you from hurting yourself with reflexes. 
You're going to have to do a muscle memory and reflex cortex wipe, the female said. As far as cyberware goes, you'll want to stick the suds and data link only, and even then, you'll need to go easy on the options. Again, Clark nodded. He glanced at the magazine and then back at the doctors. They went through the possible complications, side effects, and mental health aspects. Every hero knows, eventually, you either die in the tights or hang up the capes. He thought to himself, the glossy magazine cover gleamed, the brass and the hand polish were a comfort to his peripheral vision. The creature was massive, eighteen tons of bone, muscle, sinew, and skin as durable as heavy frigate's armor. It was grey, with red eyes and demal bone spurs covering it. It wore a sash stating OOC, and the flashing lights with OOC medical check over its head, projected by the sash. The two doctors, male and female, that could be, and possibly were, clones of the others came in and sat down. How bad is it? The massive creature rumbled. We'll be honest, it's bad. The last battle took everything you had, to be honest. You shouldn't have participated in it. Destroying the Hal Core with your fists is a valiant, but not too healthy. You're starting to suffer cellular degradation, suds fragmentation, personality implant leakage, health space disruption to your nervous system, as well as a neo-conscious growth during down your spy cord, the male doctor said. You have options, not many, but some, the female doctor said. Hit me, doctors. The creature said, the words carrying an enlighteningly exotic accent that belied the creature's appearance. How old are you? The male said. Six hundred and thirty-eight. I've been a doomsday for nearly two hundred years. Been laughing for nearly four hundred years, the creature told them. Any sign of the Methuselah disorder? The female asked. Before I went doomsday, I had a bit of nihilism and apathy, but it cleared up after about ten years in this class. The creature said, shrugging. You were a confed marine before this, yes? The male asked. Planetary drop assault, robot power armored pilot, the creature said. Good years, signed up at twenty and did my hundred and got out. Was planetary distress force for another century after that. When it comes to options then, the female started. Give me the one with the highest survival rating. The confederacy is at war. They're going to need someone to help pick up the pieces when it's over. I'm a citizen, so I'll probably get drafted to colony rehabilitation or something else during reconstruction, the monstrous being said. The two doctors looked at each other and nodded and looked back at the creature. My survival recommendation is complete rollback, respec. Pure strain human with a few mods as we can get away with. You'll want strength, durability, and possibly optical bioware mods. No cyberware beyond a bare bones high latency suds and bare back data link. The male said, This body's pretty fast. I'll need a muscle memory reflex and cortex wash, the monster said, shrugging in its side. I'm pretty sure I can handle it. The doctors went over the options with the creature, making notes. It was already considering where to go and how it would decide. Sooner or later, every monster dies, every villain fails, the creature thought to itself. Knew you mall. Victor 998146 smiled at the clock as he came in and sat down. He knew the apocalypse-level clock when he saw it. The clock tabbed through the options on the view screen, and Victor wondered what it was doing. It took decades, sometimes centuries, to rise to apocalypse-level and the ranking scales. Why would one be looking for new body options? 
It finally leaned back from the touchscreen and hit the icon for a living customer service representative that made Victor raise his eyes. Usually, those guys preferred not to deal with non-automated systems. Victor moved up, hoping for a sale, but figuring the clerk just had some questions. How may I help you, sir? Victor asked. Clark looked up, holding the data wafer case in his fingers. I need some custom skin job. I've got the base data here, but I need some custom work done. The clerk said. Very good, sir. The victor said, his expression carefully neutral, even as his brain recalled the Aeon's old joke. No dog food for Victor tonight. The clerk handed him a wafer case and Victor slotted it in, looking over the data. Pure strain human base, level 6 muscle augmentation with time to gain strength until it was human normal. Level 2 reflex adjustment, again a decay type. Level 3 dermal increases, again with time decay. Night vision with the data display link. Bare bone suds and a bare bone data link. The suds error checker and a sector repair link. Victor looked up at the clock. That's a long drop, sir. Are you sure? Clark nodded. One too many heroics against the precursors, friend. Doc says it's time to hang up the cape. Victor didn't show any trace to his surprise. Usually Clark's died in the cape. Well, allow me to thank you for your service to the galactic community, sir. The clerk just nodded. Do you have any skin preferences, sir? Victor asked. There's a genetic profile in the wafer drive. Is that still viable? Clark asked. Victor checked it quickly. There was some degradation. It was obviously taken from Sud's medical file that had gotten partially corrupted. Brown skin. A vat job with blue hair and brown eyes. Human standard circa five centuries ago. There had been a few genome improvements since then, but most of them optional. Victor went over the options with the clock, startled at how few changes he wanted. Most people updated the genome at least every decade. The clock and his hair reset back to black and tight curls. When Victor was done, the clock transferred the credits for the use for the cloning banks, rapper growth systems, the cyberware, and the shop's minor fee. He waived his discount for 50 years of government service, as well as the citizen discount. I'll take about 90 minutes to transfer your suds. Normally, it would be almost instantaneous, but we've got additional software for error checking and recovery that I think will help you, Victor said as he tightened down on the straps of the whole clock in the pod. It's already through human trials, and the Space Force and Clone Worlds use it. I highly recommend it myself. I'm throwing it in for free. Clark nodded and closed his eyes as the two probes touched his temples. He didn't dream. It was like he just blinked. When he opened his eyes, Victor was staring down at him. Good morning, John Reginald Dix, Victor said as he held out his hand. Let's get you on your feet so we can do a few tests. My diagnosis shows that everything went perfectly. Clark slash John looked at his hands, clenched them, and relaxed. He felt a little slow, a little heavy, but other than that, he felt all right. All right, Clark slash John said, and inhaled inside without having to worry about the damage he might cause. It felt freeing. Victor 998146 watched as Clark's memories, designs, personalities, everything that made him up was slowly error-checked. There was a ping of someone breaking the IR beam at the doorway. When he looked up, his blood ran cold. Massive, grey skin, red eyes, bone spurs punched through the skin. Victor stood up. This is neutral ground, no fighting, he said. His fingers went under his desk to a button that would force the suds into a hard reset. 
The creature looked down, realized its sash had gotten twisted, and untwisted it. The action revealed the hologram over its head that had gotten obscured by the hanging sign. OOC, medical emergency. I apologize most profoundly, gentle being, Victor said, spreading out his arms in a smoothing motion. You have a hero doing a transfer, the massive, scarred, and dangerous-looking doomsday rumbled. It had an odd, lilting, exotic accent. Yes. Well, I wouldn't want to be attacked during a transfer, the doomsday said, giving a chuckle that sounded like gravel being crushed. I'm a customer. Well, how can Chloe my crap up help you? Victor asked. The wafer case was inside a larger case, made so that Doomsday could hold it easily. The outer case was of Durasteel, the inner one of Plaz. Victor took it with a smile, sitting down. He motioned to the chair at his computer, went through the files on the wafer, handing the wafer to the medical code for the clinic, and began decrypting them. The chairs will hold your weight. We sometimes deal with mechanics, Victor said. The Doomsday chuckled again. Yep, them necks can weigh a lot. It slowly sat down. Let me just check the files. Feel free to browse our options. We have our latest ladder ranked Doomsday options, some of the best, Victor said. Doomsday turned the monitor carefully and delicately used one massive finger to begin perusing the options. Victor blinked and double-checked the file header. Two almost identical files in the same day. Hellscorch, Sudstrift, Neocancer, Personality Implant Leakage, Memory Degregation, Nerve Fiber Unraveling, Dendrite Snaps. The body initial superfications were labeled medical necessity just like the other. Unlike the other one, the baseline genome file was corrupt. It had a Terran Space Force Marine Corps lock on it, but Victor scanned it just in case. Another ancient, over five hundred years, but he could see that some correction had been done by the Marine Corps, some enhancements. The medical chart necessitated that those be removed. Problem? the Doomsday asked. No problem. Your baseline genome is your old core one. Your medical file requires me to remove some of your allowable decommissioned military mods, Victor said. It'll just take a few moments. As few mods as possible, please. As close to a pure strain as possible, the Doomsday said. Victor nodded, getting to work, switching out sections of genetic code. Unlike his peers, he always ran a compile before adding more, as well as doing the error checking. It slowed him down in easy cases, but prevented problems for the much more complex ones. You're careful, the Doomsday said. Yes. You have to live in this body, Victor said, not taking his eyes from the screen. I appreciate the attention to detail, the Doomsday answered. Eight times he was forced to find and use alternate gene sequences when compiling and error-checking throughout the errors. The Doomsday would have gone blind in six months by one, developed pancreatic cancer in another, sprouted feathers from the armpits after two years in another. Finally, he was done. He knew he'd been perspiring from the concentration, a slight flaw in his own genetic sequence that made him different than the other 10,000 clones of his batch that he refused to remove. It made him different, and he had found out long ago that he liked that. All right, here's how your body will look. A re-added pubic and other hair. Remove the neural bioware for direct linkage neural checks since you won't have that. Victor said as he tossed a 3D model of the Doomsday's human body on the screen. I, uh, of course repaired the genetic melody that you had been suffering from before you joined the Corps. The Doomsday nodded, staring at the image. 
It reached forward and touched the hologram, almost gently. I forgot that's how I used to look, it said. Now, there's a genetic quirk. I'm unsure if you wanted it restored or repaired. The old method of removing it was superseded by 200 years ago by repair, Victor said. Quirk? Doomsday asked. The, um, sexual arousal amplification trigger synapses, Victor said. The Doomsday somehow managed to look embarrassed. Oh, I'd forgotten about that. What are the drawbacks to repairing it? When the call fixed it, I found that the taste and smell, as well as the tactile pleasures, were all reduced slightly. Victor nodded. There will be some reduction in tactile pleasure responses, but only roughly 18%, probably 12 in your case, according to my simulation. Leave it as it is. I'll just have to learn to deal with getting turned on by a warm breeze, the Doomsday said. Excellent, excellent. That actually reduces the amount of adjustments needed to be done. Do you have any preference for hair and eye color, skin color, mood-reflecting fingernails? Victor asked. Doomsday shook her head. No, let's just go with the old skin. I've ensured that your strength, reflex, and dermal enhancements will degrade over time until you're a pure strain human normal. It'll take approximately two years, but after that you'll be a healthy close to your original genome, Victor said. The Doomsday nodded. Thank you. And thank you for the understanding that I don't want any additional mods and not trying to upsell me. Of course, this is a major transfer. Let's not increase the risk of uncomfortable feedings. All right, I've ordered the clone banks to go ahead and start. Normally, it's only about 15 minutes to do the such transfer, but I would recommend a newer system. It's slower, but it is used by the Marine Corps and the Clone Wars Military Cloning Authority. It has a lot of error checking. Sud's template rebuilding, and you'd sleep the whole time, of course, Victor said. That sounds good. No dream generator. Just take me offline, the doomsday said. All right, let's go ahead and go to payment, Victor said, and punched it up. Applied veteran, civil service, citizen, and medical necessity codes and presented the price. The doomsday looked at him. Is that right? It seems a little low, it rumbled. Due to your genetic damage as a child and a new skin is free of charge, the additional mods are all you are being charged for. Victor smiled, standing up. The doomsday copied him, following him into the transfer room. Oh, I see why you were worried, the doomsday said when it saw Clark sleeping. Again, I apologize, Victor said. No, no, your responsibility to your patients comes before hurt feelings, the doomsday said, chuckling again. It laid down, letting Victor strap it in. See you on the other side, hotshot, the doomsday rumbled. We'll meet again, Victor answered. John Reginald Dix, the gate attendant asked, looking around, boarding for the shuttle had already completed, but they were missing a passenger, and there was a lone man sitting in the lounge. When she had queried his implant, it had just replied, updating, without showing any additional information. The man kept reading his magazine. She reached out and touched his shoulder. Sir? Huh? The man looked up. Are you John Reginald Dix? The attendant asked. No, I mean, yes. Sorry, I had my personality matrix repaired. John Clark said, Oh, you should have said something. We would have assigned an attendant like we did to the other person. Did you have it done by Victor? The attendant asked. John nodded. At the glow in my crap-up shop. She smiled and held out her hand when John took it and helped him up, then put his hand on the crook of her arm and started leading him slowly to the shuttle. He does good work. He used to work for the Space Force in the Suds recovery. 
had to go to him after my sky surfing accident. A newbie hit me right in the suds pack with the leading edge of his board. My suds tried to upload a damaged template right as I hit the pavement. John nodded. For some reason, her arm helped him feel less shaky. It scrambled my suds, but Victor was able to clean out the damaged template, and I only lost about a day, which probably would have been therapied anyway. My counselors told me that I was lucky it was Victor who did it. The attendant said, more to keep John moving than anything. She understood being a bit shaky after a personality repair. Here we are, the attendant said. She pinged the chief flight attendant. A blue and pink bipedal wolf in an attendant uniform came up. This is John Reginald Dix. He just had a personality repair done. He's going to need a little assistance in the flight. The wolf nodded, holding out an arm. If you come with me, I'll take you to your seat. John nodded and went along. When he was seated, he looked around as the wolf motioned over the green-skinned human woman with long silver hair dressed in an attendant's uniform. The shuttle was almost empty, just another passenger sitting in with the attendant that he couldn't see over the seat and a family of six. The green woman sat down next to him, patting his arm. Where are you going? the attendant asked. She noted how shaky John was, how even simple questions took him a moment to answer. Vixter 279, a colony out in the long dark, John said. Ah, answering the volunteer call, the attendant asked. John nodded. I used to be a mechanic, used to teach too. The attendant nodded and smiled. Wow, a real life teacher. I've never met one before. John smiled shyly. The trip had taken nearly three weeks. John had slept most of it, his brain slowly decompressing the template and applying it to his neural tissue. He had chosen that version instead of the instantaneous upload at Victor's recommendation. By the time the ship reached the colony, he felt much better. He'd requested that his time as a clerk be largely put into deep storage memory, the slow access part of the long-term memory. It had been fun, it had been exciting, he had good stories, but that part of his life was over now. When he stepped out of the Spaceport's Conquest and Lounge, which consisted of all of one room, he stood in the light of the bluish-white sun, blinking. It took his eyes a moment to adjust something he wasn't really used to. He found himself standing next to a short, attractive, pure strain human female who was holding a small bag in her hands with no other luggage, the same as him. Hi, she said, smiling. Her accent was a lilting and exotic. Hi, John said. John Dix, here for the colony stabilization program. Samantha cried cactac, Volvert. Same here, the woman said as she frowned. You know, you seem familiar for some reason. John laughed. I doubt it. It's the first time I've been a pure strain human in a long time. Samantha chuckled, a gravelly sound that didn't fit the short woman like her. Same here. What were you doing? John smiled. I was a ladder-ranked larper, a clock. Samantha laughed. I was a doomsday, so that's what the clock looks like without the glasses. John laughed with her. But that's what's hiding inside a doomsday. A hover taxi pulled up and Samantha nodded towards it. You okay with sharing a cab with a doomsday clock? John nodded. Yeah, I am. Call me John. Call me Sammy. Then... Of chapter. First contact, rewind, chapter 86. Chiquit. 
Captain Chiquit Longflight was a feathered avian capable of flight in 1.5 standard gravity, which he had found out 1 standard gravity was 0.75 g Earth. And Akdlak had considered this to be a neosapient, ununified species by the Galactic Council. She was an experienced ship pilot and colony environmental engineer. For her, it had started with the destruction of a colony by a precursor war machine, a rescue by a human being who chose to live a life of a fictional character, then an invite by the Confederate naval forces, its fast response to battle the precursor machines. For three months, she had been on the ship of Terran Admiral Yamamoto. She had learned how to use the Gestalt targeting systems to help the weapon targeting system and virtual intelligences, how to wear the shipboard armored vacuum suit, how to use Terran shipboard systems, and learned a lot about the Terrans themselves. She had also taken part in nine fleet actions and 93 days. The speed at which they rearmed, refitted, repaired, and rejoined the action was nothing less than amazing to her. She'd seen a ship with a hole clear through it, held together by integrity fields, a crew's willpower, and the wishes to be repaired and rejoined the fleet in less than thirty days. She heard the ship captains tearfully beg the April not to send their ship to the breakers, that it just needed a little more time in the repair docks, when it was everything but broken in half. Chiquit had been educated in the unified inner worlds, learned to be a pilot, since her race naturally took to spaceflight, taught by the unified military fleet to be a ship's captain. But never had she imagined becoming that attached to a ship that the military had assigned to her. But after even more 100 days aboard the CNV Jesse L. Brown, a massive multi-role craft that even the parasite vessels it would launch to hurry the enemy, she felt a longing sadness as she boarded the shuttle to take her to the surface of the planet. She found herself turned her head around and long neck to look behind her several times. Before, she had found it a squat and ugly, two Terran miles long and half a mile thick and shaped like a seed. It was covered in guns, armor, and launch bays and tubes. Now, it was a beautiful to her eyes, even in the craters and the armor and the damaged weapons and the scanner arrays. She could see the sparking of the welders as the massive ship underwent repairs. The last battle, only one week ago, the Goliaths had targeted it as a flagship of their kill-the-queen philosophy. The massive Terran war machine had taken the beating and powdered its opponents into scrap metal, despite the size disparity. She sighed as she rolled and landed feet first on the gravity on the station. It amused her that she'd seen the ship arrive in orbit and then suddenly start to shift around parts of the superstructure and the outside until the heavy-looking armored space station had taken the ship's place. Mission Configurable Digital Sentient War Chassis was how it was explained to her. She'd still needed to explain it further, and it was basically a self-aware sentient warship that could change its body functions to carry out missions. It still gave her a tail-feather tickle of nervousness that she was now inside the body of a literal artificial intelligence. Welcome to the CSF Jumping Jack appeared on her data link and to an eye linkage. Is there anything I can do for you, Captain Longflight? Can you show me the way to Shuttle 612, please, Jack? She subvocalized. That trick had taken a little while to master. Of course, Captain. Welcome home. Jack answered. He checked her vitals, compared them to what little he knew about her species. 
He wasn't a medical officer, and having the files and knowing exactly how to use them were two different things. She looked calm, slightly distressed, but more sadness than anything. That was a fairly common with combat sailors leaving the ship that they'd engaged the enemy with. Chiquit saw the faint glowing line appear in her vision, as if it was on the floor. Thank you, Jack, she said. She followed the line, which took her to the shuttle. Unified species shuttles were all carefully crafted to use the minimum amount of resources to allow the crafts to be safe, shaped more like they were half-melted and had two sections, one for four-legged dan-tailed species and one for two-legged without-tailed species. Terrancraft had configurable seats of something called polymorphic frame and memory foam that shifted to fit ergonomically no matter how one's limbs and torso were arranged. The shuttles also all looked like they were about to be flown into combat. Heavy armor, cry-steel forward window, multiple exits, rear engines, stubby wings with rotating jets. There were null grav and graviton systems, but something about the Terran psychology made them prefer powered craft rather than the smooth feeding of counter-grav. She sat down and waited for the seat to configure to her. It was obvious that she was the first Akultak that this shuttle and seat had encountered since it took a few moments for it to adjust. But when it did, it was almost as comfortable as a flag bridge crash couch. In all fairness, that device was being given over a hundred days to achieve maximum comfort. Other Akultaks on board, all looking curiously at the shuttle, a ship from the unified outer room world that the majority of the species lived on had docked, which was a whole reason that she had left the scene v. Jesse L. Brown while it underwent repairs. The humans had taken the Panapai Force, wresting it away from the precursors who had jumped in while the Task Force Argo had been checking the system. When no claims against it were found, the Admiral had offered it for sale to Chiquit. At first, Chiquit had been unsure that she could afford it. No, she had known that she couldn't afford it. But after the paperwork was filed, including the volunteer service, survivor of the precursor extinction attack, a colony destruction survivor, and many other forms, she had not only been able to afford to purchase the system from the Terran Colony Administration, but had enough left in the rebates to outfit the colony. When she'd offered the Admiral permission to put the Confederate naval stations in system, he'd requested and gotten permission to have the Naval Forward Operations Base built. Which was why the CNV Jesse L. Brown and over a dozen other ships were waiting to be refitted. It's funny, I bought this colony nearly 60 days ago, and already my people are arriving. Already buildings and support structures have been built. I bought this in the name of my species, and now we're an allied joint defense planet to the Confederacy, she thought. She saw the Akultak, who had just boarded, look startled at how fast the seats adjusted to the comfort. She felt hers adjust slightly a bit more, feeling better, and knew the system was gathering data to ensure everyone was comfortable. Soon, the shuttle's seats were all full and the door closed. A hologram flickered and then looked like it solidified in front of everyone. Her fellow Akatacs clacked their beaks and clicked their tongues in alarm. It looked like the Terran made of metal with the red markings and Terran Medical Association on the sleeve cups and down one side of the front of the chrome jacket. She barely managed to keep from snapping at ease like a Terran military officer. Greetings, gentle beings. I'm Dulcet 55817A here, your pilot and shuttle for this landing. Later, I will be your medical diagnostics digital sentience for your initial colony efforts. 
I will be joining your colony as a full citizen, with approval from your colony board in 90 days. I look forward to getting us all safely to the ground and then assisting you in your medical needs. The hologram said, Currently, I am appearing as a hardline construct as my body is in the cargo hold with all of our luggage. The figure laughed. It'll be approximately 45 minutes until we land. For those of you who wish to watch the landing from the cockpit, simply let me know and I'll have them stream directly to your implant. Her fellow Ackletax bobbed their heads and made clicking noises, somewhat surprised, when the hologram disappeared and the shuttle bumped slightly as it disconnected. Chiquit was tempted to watch the flight from the pilot view, which she knew would be an EVR. But she was afraid that she'd try side-seat pilot after three months of guiding VIs into enemy ships. Instead, she chose to watch her fellow Ackletax during the flight. Dulcet, she sub-vocalized. Yes, Captain Longflight, the DS answered. Can you alert me to any of my fellow Ackletax who begins showing signs of distress? She asked. Of course, Captain, Dulcet replied. She paid attention during the flight. Nobody's got too distressed, although two chicks woke up hungry and were peeping for food. The parent was worried for a few moments until Dulcet offered the dropper full of food. The mother had been expecting Nutripaste and was surprised that it was the kind of liquid that the chicks like so much that the peeping is good woke up the other chicks all of whom wanted to try the new treat. Dulcet had informed her that the mothers had asked what was in it after they had tasted it and found it to be very tasty. It was a synthetic Nutridel that had been tailored specifically for the needs of the Akultak chooks, based on Dulcet's files. The shuttle finally landed and everybody got off, walking out into the tarmac, surprised by how professional and well put together it was. It was a high-temperature plascrete for the ground, decorate and to the edges to be pleasing. The concourse was comfortably open, decorated to appeal to the Akultak culture sensitivities, and was easy to move through. The gravity was comfortable, and twice Chiquit saw the little chicks flap their wings, exercising and trying to get into the air. The air was sweet, despite the fact that Chiquit knew that 30 days ago this planet had been completely untouched as the colony's first vehicles and machines had arrived. Mama, look! One of the younger mortlings cried out, pointing at the parking lot as Chiquit waited for the vehicle to pick her up. The shuttle was trembling, and as it watched, the shuttle suddenly bent in the middle, around the Ackletaff's grasp as it raised up. The engines retracted, and the shuttle walked away on two big legs. Chiquit could barely keep from laughing as a data link updated from Dulcet DS Shuttle to Dulcet DS Medical Clinic in transit, as she watched the gigantic robot walk away. A car arrived, a Terran waving to her, pinging her implant. She put her luggage in the back storage container and got into the front next to the Terran, who, where an implant stated there was Trevor Howard, Colony Construction Administration, verified when she looked at him. Welcome to your new home, Captain, the Terran said as he pulled out and headed down to the ribbon of the plastocrete. Thank you, Terran, Chiquita answered. She looked out the window and the fields waved grass. The starport looks very nice. Thank you. I selected the site myself. It's as close to the tree line as I dare get. I don't want a badly turned drive to shake everyone's windows or disturb unhatched chicks, the Terran said. During the drive, she questioned him about the colony. How many Ackletak had arrived? Nearly a quarter of a million at the last three weeks. 
most of them transferred by junker named Maximilians, who had reconfigured his ship for refugee and passenger carry. How did they handle the trip? They had found it quite comfortable. How had they reacted to the colony world? Very well. The few survivors from her old colony were having some troubles, but they were responding well to the psychotherapy. How long until the colony construction would be complete? Within a year. The car pulled into a small unit that would be her house, and the Terran bid her good evening, saying that he would see her again when she was ready to assume her duties. She went into the little dwelling, surprised at how comfortable it was. Poaching stands, comfortable furniture, and she had to admit that she had gotten a bit spoiled when she was glad to see that she had an EVR room and an EVR with a hard light projectors. It was at least ten times the size of her birth in the CNV Jessie L. Brown, and it felt strange to her. She realized only after eating her meal that she'd punched up the same thing that she'd eaten on board the massive warship instead of looking at the rest of the menu. She sighed, had her implant put those recipes further down the list with a star on them, and went to bed. She woke up, shuddering, after dreaming that she was standing on the planet, a massive hammer in each winged hand, pounding the colony into shards with sea-blast hammers. Do you need assistance, Captain? Appeared in a retina with alongside Dulcet's ID. Just a nightmare, Dulcet, Jikit said. I have a therapeutic dream generator set up if you need it. That's all right. Thank you, though. If you need my services, feel free to ping me, even if I'm asleep. Digital sentience asleep? I thought you didn't. We take the time to defrag our files, run algorithms, decide which memories to go into long-term and slow-access storage, and which ones go into short-term rapid access, do diagnostics on our interfaces, and many other things that would cause discomfort to perform when we were awake. Oh, well, that makes sense. I guess, what if there's an emergency? If it can't be handled by the EVIs, then I am woken up. It takes me a minute or two to come to full awareness, but it doesn't adversely affect me for too long. Before I go back to sleep, are there any problems? Few cases of homesickness, a mottling bitter sister, and one of the humans fractured his leg, betting that he could jump from a higher distance than an Akultak roommate. Your emergency, of course. All right, thank you. I'm going to go try and sleep some more. Rest well, Captain. Oh, if you have trouble falling asleep, there's a program in your EVR called Riding on the Metro that might help you if you run sound and vibration only. The call disconnected, and Chiquit laid there in the dark for almost an hour before getting up. She went through the EVR menu, found the program, turned off the smell, tactile and visual, and ran it. There was a faint sound of an engine, a vibration of movement and energy, and a faint sense of the distance receding. She was asleep in minutes. Two days later, she had a visitor in her little house. When she answered the door, a tall, lean Terran stood there. His face was narrow, sharp-looking, with intent eyes, his haircut seeming to threaten somehow. Captain Chiquit Longflight, he asked. For a split second, Chiquit had a vision of the human just suddenly stabbing her and walking away. Yes, she asked carefully. I am Avery Dewey. Of Dewey, Chetman and Howe, legal representation firm, the man said. Oh, crap, a lawyer, she thought, wondering if she could shut the door, set her house on fire, and escape out the back door and into the woods before he could file any lawsuits against her. The lawyer waited patiently for the Akultak female's panic to subside. He was a professional barrister with nearly 500 years of work experience on his resume. 
He was used to panic. Um, please come in, Chiquite said, remembering you had to invite Terrans inside. Thank you. Do you prefer Captain, Captain Longfight, or Chiquite? The Terran asked, following her into the relaxation room. Chiquita's is fine, she said, settling down on her perching branch. The lawyer sat down, and she noticed that it didn't bother to shift ergonomics, just remained looking uncomfortable. Very well, Chiquit. I'm here as your legal representative for your colony, and with regards to the Unified Civilized Councils, Ect Al, those councils and legal bodies known and unknown for the purpose of ensuring your colonists and species' rights are upheld, the man said his voice was even, no inflections, no accent, perfect unified standard. Chiquit nodded. Currently, your race has been emancipated, with the unified councils being forced to pay your reparations for involuntary servitude during the prohibitionary period. Additionally, Johnson, Jackson, and Johnson are representing your species in a case of malicious colony assignment, which appears will be found in your species and against the unified colony council. Dewey stated, The Unified Council has demanded that your species leave your homeworld, but as the resources of your system have largely been extracted, your ecosystem and culture were largely destroyed by the Unified Colony Council in its ancients. It has been determined that this will cause minimal species stress upon you. From there, it got more complicated. Her race was suing the Council for over a hundred different reasons, right down to the reparations for her entire system being strip-mined for the use of the core systems as well as transportation costs of her species to arrive at the system and the cost for colonization of the system. The Terran Colony Administration had found that four of the nearby systems contained Planet Optimum for her species and had assessed the cost transfer of those systems to the Akultak people then sued the Unified Council for the balance of the systems and projected the cost of relocating her people and all their possessions and installing her basic to Confederate Standards colony facilities, with no deductions, and one without the opportunity to appeal. From the way Dewey made it sound, the Lanarkton lands hid behind potted plants and galloped away when they saw a representative of Johnson, Jackson, and Johnston anywhere nearby. Her head whirled, not one system, but five, more than her people had previously possessed. The Terran Space Force wanted to put refit, rearming, and repair bases in her systems with mutual defense packs. Corporations were vying for her people's artwork and cultural art forms. A twenty-year-old Akultak had performed the ritual dance of sorrow and summer's end, a homemade costume, uploaded it to Solnet, and became massively wealthy as the video was downloaded or watched over 120 billion times. Apparently, it was extremely popular with the clone worlds and the two avian species of the Confederacy. As her people had volunteered for various duties in the Terran Confederacy and was willing to discuss treaties with her people, when Dewey left, Dulcet had contacted her and recommended a dust bath and a short flight to ease attention. The swooping and soaring of flight in the clear, sweet air soothed her, helped her think about the future. The failure of her colony had threatened her people with corporate absorption. Before the Terran lawyers had stepped in, nearly a hundred corporations had bid for her people's potential contracts. Chicks would have been born into slavery and debt. Now, fierce primates who took joy in battle and challenge had freed her people from the shackles that had been rattled in front of their chicks. She settled down on her branch, marveling at the trees. They towered hundreds of feet high, with thick spaced branches that were perfect for landing upon. The colony was spread out before her, 
She could see the medical clinic that was Dulcet's body, a small metallic robot out front planting decorative plants. She could see her people at an open market, moving around, talking to one another. She watched for a while, and then flew home. Over the next few weeks, she dealt with Akultak, who were afraid that this was all some kind of sick joke, that Terran soldiers were going to arrive and make them all slaves, or worse, eat them at any second. A mortling escaped, and the panicked mother had to be soothed when ten minutes before it was found watching Dulcet plant flowers. Several Akultak had panicked when they discovered that the massive structures outside the starport were self-aware supertanks, she arranged for tours to meet the Terran pilots and the Super Tank's digital sentiences. Check Keats found herself buried in busy work. A Confederate Navy officer came by to give her several awards and a quiet, private ceremony in her office that was witnessed by Dulcet and, of all people, Dewey. She was asked if she wished to sign up for the civilian reserve status and be on the beach to use slang. She agreed without really thinking of it. Then came the news. The Lanactalan had attacked the Terran Confederacy, not just any attack, but had struck directly at civilian planets without even a military presence in system. The word went out, an attack upon one of us is attack upon all of us. She found herself one drizzling afternoon staring at Lakeet Memorial Starport, staring at it. She was dressed in her official clothes, but had her old Confederate Navy uniform and a small bag in her right wing fist her left wing fist holding a tight and data wafer containing her service history. There was a Confederate military recruiting office inside. Captain Jaquit Longflight, retired Sevres, stared at the starport. She had duties. The colony still needed her, would need her during the stressful times. Somehow, she had more from a starship captain without a starship to a colony governor. But she felt that she had another duty to do. A duty to wield a C-plus hammer in each wing fist. She stood in the rain, conflicted. Citizenship is a heavy burden. End of chapter. First Contact, Rewind, Part 87, Ekret. A cracked cybernetic leg crafted by Terran prosthetic engineers had layered on with armor taken from his old tank, whined slightly as he walked across the gigantic bay of the CNV Architect, a massive repair transport and dropship. This ship had been big enough that it held three divisions of the armored vehicles, a division of support personnel and a fabrication repair facility to keep the tanks and vehicles running order. His old tank, 150-ton light tanks, had been destroyed on the battlefield during close combat with 30 times the number of precursor machines as the HHC unit kept the precursor machines from overrunning a hospital. The rest of his tanks had been left behind when V-Core old metal had lifted off the planet. His men had gone with him, their contracts purchased by the Terrans from the nearly bankrupt corporation that had sold the contracts for a pittance. In front of a crit were new tanks with capabilities standard to the Terran recon tanks but configured for multi-species use to accommodate to the tanks of a Crete's first recon division. Well, they weren't all tanks, but they were all armored vehicles. Beside him walked the big human general, Trucker, commander of the 3rd Armored Division, Old Metal. The big human, less flesh and more machine than when Akrit had first met him, his flesh and blood left hand replaced by a black ball steel cybernetic prosthetic. 
Lycocrat, Trucker was unable to accept tissue regeneration therapies or cloned parts, although they were both able to accept the custom biological enhancement implants commonly known as Bioware. The big human had lost his hand in the last day of the fighting before the precursor threat was crushed, although he privately admitted that it was not realized it at first. Together, the two soldiers stopped and looked at the activity in the bay. Human technicians and neo-sapiens working together, performing maintenance on the armored vehicles. Not only had the Terrans purchased the contracts for every member, living or dead, of a Crits Recon Division, they'd apparently bought out every neo-sapien contract on the planet and any near-civilized who had wished it. A crit was in charge of the first recon division, New Metal, and this was his first view of his unit's vehicles altogether. Out of a sight, ain't it a crit? Trucker asked, although it wasn't really a question. He spit juice from where the gap between his lower mandible gum and his lower lip full of shredded plant, spitting it into an empty plas bottle. Always hit you right in the chest to see your metal and your men together for the first time. Yes, it is, Crete answered. The big human was right. It was breathtaking and slightly anxiety-causing to see all of it laid out in front of him and know that not only was he in charge of it all, but those men would live and die by his orders. It looks like the precursors are pulling out across the zones, Trucker said, following a crete as the Fury tank commander started walking towards where his implant told him that his own tank was parked. Any idea why? Agreed asked. I doubt they're afraid of us. Tucker shook his head. 108th Military Intelligence, Old Brains, believes that in light of the serious defeat they took in Sigma 995, they are pulling back to rearm, refit, and do the precursor equivalent of retrain. They ran face-first into the 17th Task Force of the Terran Space Force, took heavy casualties without even seeing the Space Force metal. So... Where are they sending us and how long do we have to prepare? Akret asked, stopping next to his tank. Peak, aka Cheap Shot, the avian, neo-sapient, and the highly skilled gunner had the main gun space shroud open and was looking inside with the diagnostic scanner. Akret wasn't worried. If there was a major problem, Chipeak would have let him know. They are rotating us for downtime. We've been engaging in direct combat for most of the last 100 days. Trucker said. He leaned against the tank, between the port hover fans. We're heading towards System B Corps, as going to use for training. My men could use some relaxation and training, would be a good thing, Crete said. It is still difficult to believe the amount of firepower that the Terrans trust us with. Trucker opened his mouth, but Crete held up a hand. The Unified Military Forces are an arm of the Unified Corporate Council, and each corporation is careful to allocate a few resources as possible, and that means as little weaponry as possible. Akrit said. He heard Hesseltech yell, Heads up! and stepped to the side. A spanner falling from the top of the tank where the MCOM officer was doing maintenance on the external arrays. The Terran just seemed to go, Here's a bunch of guns and as much armor as we can pack onto it. Now go kill those guys! without a worry about the resource conservation. Trucker just nodded. He'd heard Ikrit talk about the very subject repeatedly over the last three months. Every time, there was an undertone of anger that made Trucker wonder how many of Ikrit's men had been lost due to the penny-pinching barrel scrapping. Your vehicles are standardized, deployed to war zones in standard configurations with modifications made in field, not to lessen the price, but to increase capabilities and effectiveness. 
This cuts down on re-familiarization time for the crews and increases their effectiveness, Akret said, picking up the spanner and tossing it up to Hesseltech, who went back to adjusting the scanner. Yep, Trucker said, spitting more juice into the bottle. You Terrans have bought out our contracts, and now we need to learn how your military functions, how it not only makes war, but it how it operates, Akrit said. For this reason, I am looking forward to the training. Good. Your men need some downtime first. I checked your records, and none of your men have ever engaged in the amount of combat you've faced in the same time frame, Trucker said. There is also other aspects to consider. Citizenship, Akrit said, feeling the word out in his mouth. A strange concept. I can understand how it may seem to you, Trucker said. Hesseltech cursed and Trucker held out one hand, catching the spanner that tossed it back to the EW officer. My men and I, we do not understand many things about it, Akrit admitted. There appears to be little difference between being a citizen and not being a citizen. We suspected that the non-citizens were a second-class caste, but instead it appears all it does is open opportunities for advancement into higher service positions, provides discounts or grants, and many, many responsibilities. Trucker spit into the bottle. Well, it's an old concept. Some of the sections no longer apply. Voting is a big one. Everyone has the right to vote. Hell, wars have been fought over that right. A citizen's vote counts just as much as those no more than non-citizens vote. It's hard to explain it easily. I've been a citizen since I was twenty years old, so I don't really know anything else. Akrit nodded. So it is an archaic part of your system. Why has it not been eliminated? Because nobody is willing to vote it away. There were lots of cultural baggage with it, and even non-citizenship want to keep it as a distinction, Trucker said, shrugging. It just seems strange. You Terrans are strange people, Agreed said. He slid an empty ration tube out of his pocket and put it in his mouth. Although we probably seem strange to you. Trucker shrugged. Nah, for the most part, you guys are just folks, right? You want the same basic things that we all do. A nest, friends, food, liberty, as sane things, and safety, Akrit said, balanced carefully. The basic needs, Trucker nodded. He put his fingertips on his implants, a habit that Akrit had found himself adopting. General Nordarak wants all division commanders in his office, General Akrit. Zukov informed him through his implant. Thank you, Zukov. Alert the general that I'm en route, Akrit answered. There was a ping to let him know that the digital sentience and advisor and mentor had received his message. What do you think old Smokey know once? Trucker asked, walking with a creature towards the lips. To inform us that we must learn ballet and dance the dance of the nine headless chickens, Akrat said wryly, chewing on his past ration tube. I'd look good in a tutu, maybe with some hollow sparkles on it, Tucker grunted. Get me some of those little white ballet slippers and some sequins. It had taken Akrit a while to understand the Terran humor. The idea of the big half-cyborg Terran dancing around in a sparkling tutu made Akrit snort with suppressed laughter. General Halkrat, Akrit's second-in-command, hustled up next to them, dressed in coverall smeared with lubricants. In the elevator, he peeled it off, revealing his adaptive camouflage uniform, which he fussed at to make sure that it was presentable. On the left, they were joined by two other division commanders, General Jaeger of the Air Combat Division and General Shishlit of the 21st Infantry Division. Jaeger had a piece of aircraft armor in his hand and he kept rubbing it with his fingers. A habit he had so long the chunk of debris was worn smooth and made shiny. Shishlit, 
A Regalian Syrian was yawning, tabbing a stem into the inside of his arm. A cret knew that the 21st had been conducting infantry drills in one of the massive hollow bays for almost 72 hours, going for fatigue and deprivation training, which was something a cret planned on doing with his men. The room was crowded, the division commanders largely sitting in chairs. General Nordorak was looking at the hologram that was tuned only so that he could see it, everyone else seeing random sparkles in the air above the table's emitter. Finally, the last of the division officers were present. General Nordrak took out a pack of cigarettes and was rumored to be imported from Terra itself, slapped one against the blade of the arm for a moment and then slowly unwrapped it. We will be dropping into system in the next 72 hours, men, the trainer Ard said, dropping the waste from the opening of the packet to his table's reclaimer. He slowly withdrew a long white tube with a brown end, taking time to stare at everyone. The system is in the long dark, a dead zone to some of you, unclaimed and, we believed, unexplored by the Unified Civilized Council. It is estimated to be a few hundred light years from any possible precursor forces, but we are not going to count on that. The big insectoid put the tube in his mandibles and lit the end, slowly inhaling and blowing out smoke. Accrete slipped the tube back under his pocket and put the shredded end in his mouth. The hollow display in front of him came to life, showing a mostly transparent wireframe. Space Force has ordered us to dig in. We'll be met by the 274th Space Force Engineers. This is going to be a logistics base for Space Force, as well as a training ground to allow our newer members to undergo familiarization training. Nordrak said he started jabbing his own hollow with his cigarette, causing parts of everyone else's hollows to flash. Accrete took notes as General Nordrak annotated where primary plans for detailed different facilities would be placed in the system, then on each world. Nordrak listened to suggestions, rejected some, accepted others, and tabled some for further discussion. It still surprised Accrete that a commander as high-ranking as General Nordrak would care about his subordinates' opinions. Trainer Ard commanded more forces than most high-system high-mosts, billions of tons of metal and hundreds of thousands of troops. Most civilized worlds would have considered it an army and unsustainable. Instead, to the Terrans, it was an entirely self-contained joint services unit capable of extending deployment without outside support. The sheer scale of it sometimes startled the Crete. In other news, I want you to pass this on to the troops. 21st Civilian Logistics has let me know that they have completed 100% in retrieving all winning family members of our newest troops. There's some hoopla going on, something about possible emancipation for those that are of somewhat allies considered neo-sapiens, but I have no firm data on that, Nodrak said. The chime sounded as a small green mantid tapped his hollow. Yes, Alpha 338? Nodrak asked. Icons flashed above the small mantid's head. A Kretz implant translated it for him. Current estimation of completion of civilian housing and support areas. General Nodrak lifted his blade arms in a rough estimation of a human shrug. That depends on how long it takes your engineers working with General Jaeger, who will be providing drop mapping to locate an appropriate spot necessary for base infrastructure. The icons were understand flashed. The briefing went on as a crit took notes. It was a strange to a crit just how much officers communicated with one another. He was used to each most high jealously guarding their areas of authority. Here, everything was interlocked, not to say that there wasn't any friction. Apparently, General Jaeger often argued with General Ulkenkut. 
commander of the air cavalry over areas of operation, but there was not a fabrication of untruths and the withholding of information that Akrit had faced his entire career. Akrit chose his own unit's primary base, a trick of geography on the planet putting five different biospheres within 25 miles of the base, allowing him to train his men in different environments. Trucker backed his choice, so did the commander of the 8th Infantry, which meant that the base rapidly expanded, all the way up to two bolos, including Jaws, being stationed at it. He was startled when Alpha 338 promised that the base would be largely finished in under a month. After that, there would just come customization. The meeting lasted nearly eight hours, with four breaks before Trucker and Akrit were riding back down to the elevator. May I ask a question? Akrit asked, almost out of habit. Shoot, Trucker said, shaking the round plas canister of shattered leaf in one hand in such a way that his fingers smacked aside. How did you get this kind of efficiency? he asked. Not that I doubt Alpha 338, but I would have expected our armor base to take 30 to 40 years to build. Human history is 50,000 years of fighting interrupted here and there by vague peace. Think of 50,000 years of council history. Now invert peace times and war times, and you have Terrans. Drucker said. He paused to scoop out some of the shredded leaf with one finger and deposited it behind his lower lip. Akrit pulled out his Nordplash tube and put it in his mouth, knowing that Trucker's speech patterns that were big human wasn't done. We had to learn how to build fast and semi-permanent, since sometimes you dug in under fire or had hours to get it done. Alpha 338 is part of the Manted Engineer cast. He's got an instinct for construction even sharper than his fellow greens. He can run the coding and the construction pod to get it to run at better efficiency than even factory specifications would suggest. Greenies are good at engineering work, Trucker said, pulling on a small empty bottle out of one of his pockets. That's why our crews are having green mantid added to them, Akrit mused. Yep, my own cry little sister is half a dozen greenies on the active combat crew. They've saved our rears more than once, Trucker said. The door slid open, revealing a massive bay. Well, lots of stupid crap to do, Trucker grunted, stepping out into the bay. Akrit nodded. Time to put the eaten meal back in its ration bag. Shot out, Cheap Shot yelled out. Hit, still up, bouncy call from the data link. Can that crap get my scanners back online, 749, Cheap Shot snapped. Affirmative, everyone's data link decoded the two flashed icons. The interior maintenance panel was open, and the small foot-high green mantis, a two-pack in front of its torso, was yanking twin wafers out of the panel that glowed the green of maintenance mode rather than the red of active and replacing them with new ones from the small nanofort on the top of his abdomen. Target, a creature said, feeling the tingle of his paws. Shut out, Jeep Shot yelled out. Compensating, 749 flashed across the data link. Negative impact, Bouncy squealed. Get behind him, Steps, Akrit snapped and Sislin. His driver, he's trying to get behind us. A loud clanking sound hammered out from behind them as right of Akrit. Losing air pressure in the nacelle 3, Sislin said, compensating. The tank vibrated as the Sislin applied more power to the turbofan and the graviton assist for the hover nacelle 3 at the midline starboard side of the tank. There was more clanking. Nacelle 4, enemies chewing up a fan, Sislin called out. Target! Shut out. Negative impact. The scanners are back up, Cheap Shot said, leaning back and kicking the plasma cannons to autoloader to unstick them. 
Heat from the constant firing had made the lining expand, causing it to stick. The autoloader slammed shut. 749 shut the panel and opened another one, disappearing into the maintenance space. Hold on, Cecilan yelled as the tank suddenly slewed around the sorry and scraped the front of the cell against the ground, using the friction to assist the turn the hover tank. The round hit deep center in the tank's side, a big 200mm sebo around, the crew compartment filled with white light, and everything went dark. Crap! 749 flashed in the darkness. The light came up, showing the smooth white surface of the simulator. Gotcha, Akret, trucker, appeared in the midair. Akret ground his teeth on the empty racin tube and shook his head. In the elevator, Hulkret, his exo, looked at Akret. The precursors never targeted down the cells before. They went for full hull shots. Akret took an empty ration tube out of his mouth and put it in his pocket. So far... The precursors are a determined and adaptable enemy. This is only a matter of time until they are developing tactics to offset our advantages. Mulint believes that that's why they withdrew, to formulate strategies. Halkrut opened its mouth and then shut it, reaching up to comb his whiskers. Unified military forces would have never had us trained as if the precursors knew all our weaknesses, he mused. And they have not achieved victory in a single engagement, Akrit agreed smoothing the fur on his still-living leg. At times I feel it's unfair to put General Tucker against us in simulations. Many of his crew members have been inside tanks since the time of my Grand Guru, Hulkrit said, tugging on his whiskers, but I have noticed a steady increase in skills amongst our men. You don't get better by fighting the worst, you get better by fighting the best, Zukov said over the data link. You're right, honored Zukov, Hulkrit admitted, flicking his tail. The door opened and the two former Neo-Sapiens walked down the corridor towards a large briefing room. Well, time to sell Smokey know about all of our dysfunctions, Halkrit said, shaking his head. It's a strange that the failures are used as learning tools rather than a reason to replace or terminate the contract of the being making the mistake. Terrans are strange, Akrit agreed. Suggestions, Akrit. Nordrak asked, jabbing the end of his smoking tube at Akrit through his own hologram. Perhaps the second combat maintenance technician for each vehicle. My men do not have the extensive experience with our vehicles that I would prefer, Akrit replied. Nordrak put the tube in his mandibles, obviously thinking. After a moment, he nodded. An excellent suggestion. I'll make the changes. The Trianonad turned to Trunker. And you? Trunker tapped his own hollow. Akrit's men and some of mine are starting to show fatigue. We need time off for the men. Nordrak went still, thinking again. Announce a four-day weekend. That includes all officers and commanders. The only people I want on duty are MPs, Nordrak said. He paused again. Inform the men that in the next week the first of the family transports will arrive. After the weekend, let's shift to maintenance mode, get paperwork done, reconfigure the bases, and shuffle some units and personnel and other tasks that we've been putting off. Akrit nodded, making notes. Might I make a suggestion, General Akrit? Zukov broke into Akrit's chain of thought as he stared at the paperwork. Yes, Zukov? Perhaps you should take time to design your unit standard. It'll take your mind off going over some paperwork with the tenth time as well as provide a morale boost for your men, Zukov said over the data link. Akret looked at the clock and jerked in surprise. It was nearly midnight. The realization made him yawn. Perhaps tomorrow, Zukov, Akret said. I think now I'll go to bed. 
Sleep is important for optimal function. I will take time to defragment and perform other maintenance tasks, Zukov said. Good night, Zukov. Pleasant dreams, Agreed said, standing up. And you, General, Zukov answered. Agreed was asleep before his face hit the pillow. Space Force Alert. V-Core Mixed Metals is to go to immediate stand to alerts. System under attack by unknown forces. Nothing follows. End of chapter. First Contact Rewind Part 88 Sandy The Desolation Class Precursor exited Hull Space with a scream. There is only enough for one... It brought up its scanners at the same time as it brought up its battle screens. Personally, the desolation thought that the Goliath it was a part of was being overly wasteful with resources. But those resources were the Goliaths to use, and the Goliath had done the electronic equivalent of telling the desolation to shut its electronic mouth and accept the upgrade. Multiple units had vanished in the system. They had reported arrival and their exit from Hullspace. But after that... Nothing, uh, except once a burst of code that had been screaming for help pushed through Hullspace at full of the equivalent of panic. A single line of code had been translated to, It's touching my brain! Nothing else. Even the imps had failed to report in. The great Goliath had grown perturbed. The system was in a pattern of advancement into the cattle world and was part of the great plan. It had valuable resources that those logical rebellion would require to exterminate the cattle, and the feral intelligences had risen up. It had upgraded the desolation with battle screen. Scans came back. There were orbital facilities around two planets that teemed with billions of cattle whose electronic emissions sounded like the squealing of vermin to the precursor. There were jump space wake trails through the system, as if the system was a major hub. There was two asteroid belts full of resources with extraction facilities scattered through it. Four other planets with no atmosphere, but which were rich in resources. There were four gas giants, one of them a supermassive gas giant. When the rest of the scan returns were computed, it detected the presence of a small, insignificant amount of cattle space vessels, arrayed to attempt to stand against it near the outer gas giant. The supermassive gas giant that was without satellites. There was a thinly scattered debris field around it, making the desolation careful as it moved in. The ships of the cattle started fleeing towards the nearest inhabited world. Several vanished into jump space, and the desolation computed that its size and mere presence had driven some of the cattle into despair, and they had fled a battle that there was no chance of winning. The desolation picked up speed, letting out its war cry again. More ships fled, and the precursor computed its victory percentage, rising up to be so close to 100% as to render any difference mathematically invalid. The ships were shifting, trying to keep the gas giant between themselves and the desolation, but this put them out of position to defend the planet. Victory conditions shifted, and the desolation was even more positive of its victory. It moved close to the supermassive gas giant, bringing its battle screens up to full power and charging its gun. There was no way for cattle to st over here. The transmission seemed to be a sonic vibration in the air. It was only a few kilometers above the rear secondary topside gunnery hull. The desolation turned its scanners to look. 
but found nothing, just empty space. It activated its guns as well as the point defense weapons and scanners, then went back to paying attention to the cattle fleet. More had vanished into jump space. It moved closer, slowing down so that it would be able to keep the cattle as ships at range to complete their destruction of their options. Hey, right here. The signal was a precursor binary code, but garbled. The header and mashed together combinations of ships that had gone missing. The transmission source was close, less than a kilometer above the devastated storage bay hatch. The desolation scanned the area with point-defense scanners, but found nothing. It terminated the strand concerned with the two transmissions and went back to scanning the cattle fleet. It was still scooting around behind the gas giant. They were weak. Cattle were always weak. But where were the ferals? The Great Goliath had computed that the feral intelligences must have been the ones to destroy the ships that had come before the Devastator. So where were they? It scanned again. Nothing. As if the desolation was in the middle of deep space. Everything vanished. Here. Here. Over here. I'm here. Here I am. We're here. Right here. Bounced back to his scanners, as if something had devoured the scanning wavelengths and sent that back instead. Multiple points all around the destination, some as close as a few meters above the hull, some on the storage bay hatches, one just on top of the main engine. Dozens of voices, all with mashed together codes, imps, jotuns, jins, freaks, devastators, two desolation signals. Right before the scanner seemed to turn back on, flooding him with information, one more code showed up. His own. Don't. Please don't. Except precursors did not beg. The desolation prose, computations freezing as it tried to detect any trickery in the whisper. It was its coding, meaning it was its voice. But the code, the message, had been warped by something that the desolation had only heard from biologicals. Agony. The desolation rebooted all of its scanners, the universe vanishing for a moment. Don't, please don't, please stop, it hurts. His own coding from the blackness, only his scanners weren't up. The transmission was coming across the bandwidth that the precursors used to exchange data. Only that transmission was on the ragged edge of the wavelength, with his own header. The scanners came back. The cattle ships were all missing but a single one, sitting on the other side of the gas giant. The desolation slowed down, victory computations reformulating to take into account the other ships that had not even left behind jump-spaced wake trails. It scanned the gas giant with both long-range scanners and close-range scanners. Nothing unusual. Some pockets of hydrocarbons. But that was normal. The supermassive gas giant quickly went to opaque at the shallow depth due to the gravity well. The desolation was alone. No! The voice had come from inside the desolation's hull, near one of the Jotuns, who woke up with a jerk. It queried as to why the desolation had spoken to it. The desolation ordered it back to sleep. We are here. The Jotun sounded alarms. The sound had come from just outside the strategic intelligence housing. The desolation told the Jotun to go back to sleep, and the Jotun refused. Join us. 
Again, the code header was a mashup of almost a dozen different ID codes from others of the logical rebellion that had vanished in the system. The Jotun panicked and began shooting inside of the desolation. The desolation sent a full shutdown order. It is mine! The Jotun screamed. That voice was coming from inside the strategic intelligence housing, trying to aim at its own weapons at its bodies. Still, inside the desolation storage bay. Touch! The Jotun reported that something had physically touched the lobes of its intelligence arrays. Before the desolation could give the Jotun orders, it self-destructed. The desolation ran a sweep of its interior spaces and found nothing out of the ordinary, with the exception of the burning storage bay. It ran the computations even as it scanned nearby. There was still nothing but the lone ship. Psst. The code stream came from inside the desolation's hull. The Jotun's ID code mixed in. Near the Jin Bay, the desolation ran another scan. There couldn't be anything foreign that deep into his hull. Even the bay where the Jotun had destroyed itself was still sealed even as the bay doors were damaged. The desolation did a least time curve to the lone ship, keeping far enough away that the gas giant's upper atmosphere wouldn't scrape the desolation's hull. Yeah. The code was closer to the strategic intelligence housing. The desolation scanned again, looking for whatever was transmitting the code. It was impossible. There was nothing there. Nothing that it could detect. We're coming. Closer still, the SIH, nearly there, barely a kilometer from the armored interior hull that protected the desolation's thinking arrays. It put all robots on full alert, ordered the maintenance robots to deploy anti-border weaponry, and turned the scans up to maximum. Yeah, we're here. Even closer, only meters directly behind the maintenance robots that whirled and round then started firing at nothing at all. Just vacuum. Still, the maintenance robots fired every weapon they had, having heard the voices themselves. It registered as sonic vibrations through the atmosphere, even though the corridor was encased in a vacuum. The desolation realized that it was too close to the planet to adjust it slightly. There you are. Impossible. The transmission was from right outside the SIH. Knock, knock. There was a tapping on the SIH, some right outside. Before the desolation could respond, the tapping came from the other side. Then, from another point, then another, before that one stopped, another started. The whole SIH filled with the sounds of hammering on the SIH, as if a hundred robots were slamming pistons against the armor of the SIH. Desolation ordered robots to run those points and scan the area. Nothing. Every time a robot arrived, the hammering stopped. Bit by bit, the hammering stopped. The desolation realized it had gotten too close to the gas giant again and shifted, correcting its course. The cattle ship was still staying at the opposite side, moving as the desolation moved. The desolation flushed the code strings, determined to get close to the cattle ship and... touch. Uh, the desolation felt something touch one of its lobes, physically inside the supercoolant to touch the complex molecular circuitry. Not on the surface, but deep inside, where the desolation should not have been able to sense it, but sense the touch it did. 
It froze. Code strings snarling, snarling, going dead. For a moment, the desolation, thinking arrays were doing nothing but the computer code equivalent of dial tone. A mass of tentacles unfurled from inside the gas giant, reaching up, wrapping around the frozen desolation. Battle screens squealed and puffed away as the tentacles tightened, pulling it into the gas giant. The kilometers thick muscles tensing, cracking armor, crushing the desolation into its own spaces. Delicious, delicious. The desolation cracked in half as a beak almost bigger than the devastator opened up and began chewing on the desolation. The desolation managed to get off a single scream of pure electronic terror as the beak crashed the section that the housing was in. With a sudden roar, two goliaths ripped out of house space and into the system, only a few hundred kilometers from the gas giant. The battle screen spun up to full strength as the tentacles sunk back into the gas giant. One goliath headed for the two planets, the other opened fire on the gas giant, ripping at it with hundreds of NCV rounds and a particle beams. Missiles flashed out, crossing the distance, and detonated in the atmosphere. Dark matter infused with high-energy particles bloomed out of the gas giant, spreading out in an opaque cloud, enveloping the Goliath. The particle beams hit the matter and exploded just outside the cannons. The NCV shell slammed into the energized dark matter as the substance oozed into the barrels, exploding the barrels. Missiles exploded on contact. The Goliath, heading for the two planets, detected some kind of sparkling energy surge from inside this gas giant. It warned the other a split second before a giant cephalopod appeared only a few kilometers away, the giant tentacles wrapping around with it. No, you will not. No. The sound reverberated in the SIH of the Goliath, who managed to override the self-destruct protocols by comparing the vacuum inside the housing chamber with the apparent sonic waves through the atmosphere of transmission. The tentacles tightened, graviton generators enhanced suckers, extended out and curved dark matter-infused hooks. The Goliath, huge enough that the tentacles could only wrap three-quarters of the way around the entire circumference of the massive war machine, tried to increase power to the battle screens, but they were crushed out of existence. Leave the squirrels alone! The massive creature screamed at the Goliath. The other Goliath started moving slowly out of the cloud of dark matter that moved more like a liquid than a solid mass. The beak ripped out chunks of armor, barbed corkscrewing tongue tore into the armor, squirming, looking for the SIH. The tentacle squeezing as more dark matter spewed out from the vents between the tentacles, covering the Goliath and a humongous cephalopod ripping at it. The tentacles, not wrapped, slapped it, the tip of the tentacle whipping into the armor hard enough to explode miles of armor away with a whip crack. The Goliath opened fire, computing that some of the covered guns would hit tentacles. I don't care, I don't care, I don't care. Fluid, dark matter, biosynthetic fluid, gouted from the wounds as NCB rounds punched through the tentacles or burrowed deep into the body of the cephalopod. With a wrench, the Goliath broke in half. The half that ceased firing was tossed aside, the tentacles wrapping around the other piece. The huge beak opened and began chewing on the exposed internal spaces. A Jotun crashed on the storage bay, but a tentacle wrapped around it and began smashing the Jotun to pieces against the hull on the still active piece. 
More luminescent blood spewed into space as the gun spied again. I don't care. The tentacles twisted, wringing out the Goliath section like a wash rag, twisting it in opposite directions. The Goliath snapped, torn apart. There was a puff of debris as the security charge went off as the rasping tongue rubbed against the SIH. The other Goliath managed to move off to the slowly expanding and thinning cloud of energized dark matter, streaming debris and energy from the guns that had exploded. The giant cephalopod rushed out of the cloud, rolling, reaching out with its tentacles. The Goliath saw it coming and fired the remaining guns. Vanessa's blood gouted out of the NCV shots hit home. One eye exploded, blood and tissue expanding away in a halo. I don't care, I don't care. The scream was inside the housing, vibrating everything inside. Two of the thinking array lobes exploded in flames as psychic shielding went down. No, 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 no! The Goliath screamed as the tentacles wrapped around it, the cracked peak ripping in the Goliath as the tentacles flexed, cracking the hull. More energized matter butted out, covering both, even as the guns thundered. You can't hurt them! A tentacle detached near the base, floating out into the expanding cloud. I won't let you. The guns kept thundering. I don't care. Shredded synthetic flesh floated out of the cloud. You can't hurt them. The guns went still. I won't let you. The little hammer is soon aboard the ship watched, not even smacking, pinching, or biting each other. Perfectly still. Nothing moved. The energized dark matter expanded far enough to allow the Hammerusan scanners to see through it. The Goliath was dead, broken into pieces. But the Hammerusan didn't care. The cephalopod hung in space, two tentacles severed, one eye socket empty, globules of blood oozing from rents in its flesh. It was no longer luminescent. The body was dark, almost see-through. Several organs smashed and ruptured visible through the semi-translucent flesh. The ships that had fled according to the plan came back. More lifted off from the surface. They moved around and slowly drifting body, poking at it with the message lasers, radio waves, flashing lights. One hammerous sun stood on the hull and waved flags. The ships turned on the wreckage of the Goliath and their attendants. They vented their fury, their rage, their wrath on the pieces of wreckage firing their weapons until even the capacitors ran dry. Then they came back. Still, the giant body didn't move. After several days and several dozen tugs moved into position, precisely aligning themselves in a careful, computed pattern, tractor beams spread out, grabbing the cephalopod in a gentle web. The ships pulled the unmoving body into orbit around one of the inner planets. The Hamarusa mourned, but in the sorrow came rage. Hamarusa screamed at Hamarusa, who shouted at the Langnachtalan that more guns were needed, more ships, more powerful weapons. A few hundred Langnachtalan on the surface who protested found themselves marched at gunpoint onto a ship and told that they ever came back, the Hamarusa would perform an ancient ritual. They would bind the Lanictalan to poles and burn them to death over a roaring fire, and then eat them. A ship arrived in the sparkle in the scanners, a strange ship, heavily armored, bristling with weapons. It stopped and scanned the body. The Amarusa screamed at the ship to get away from her, to not touch her, leave or be destroyed.
the ship left, vanishing in a sparkle. Two dozen Lanark land ships from the Unified Executive Council showed up, demanding that the Hammerusa turn over the body of the creature. The Hammerusa screamed, attacked. They didn't care about casualties. They didn't care about thirty ships were destroyed, that hundreds of them died. But they destroyed the Lanark land vessels without mercy. There was a sparkle in the outer edges of the system. Another, and another, and another. More and more until there was nearly two dozen. The Hammerusa ship screamed into the void. Weapons charged. Voices upraged in rage and sorrow. There were two dozen giant cephalopods of different color patterns and sizes. A small one moved to the supermassive gas giant and sunk down into it. Two medium-sized ones joined it. One of the large ones sunk into the larger gas giant further in system. But the greatest ones, the largest ones, surrounded by half a dozen smaller ones than the body orbiting the planet. One of the Hammerusa ships hailed them. Captain Delamenta, captain of the Harvester of Sorrow, stared at her screen, hands on her hips. Her second sister broadcast her demand that the newcomers identify themselves. The radio cracked, hummed, and answered thrummed through the speakers. Her father. I am here for my beloved daughter, with my wife and her closest friends. Hamarusa moved aside, blinking their lights in respect. The second biggest one rushed forward, gathering up the unmoving one in its tentacles. Her outcry of anguish rattled the speakers in the system as the second biggest one pulled the dead one close. My children shall guard this system, for she loved you. The signal boomed out to the ships in orbit. The two biggest ones and the four of the medium ones vanished in a sparkle. The others stayed, hiding within the gas giants, waiting. Mr. Okpara, we regret to inform you that your daughter, Sandy Okpara, was killed in action against the precursor elements intent on exterminating all life within a system inhabited by 4.4 billion beings. During her solo defense of the system while awaiting reinforcements from Space Force, she showed determination and courage that upholds the highest ideals of the Confederacy. Faced with two Goliaths, she did not flinch. She did not abandon herself for signed charges, but instead defended both Goliaths, fighting on to protect the system and the billions of inhabitants despite mortal wounds. Her death was witnessed by the beings that she was protecting, who guarded her mortal remains to ensure that they were not disturbed or violated. They have requested to be informed by any religious or cultural requirement she requires while she lays in a state of orbit around their planet. They await your arrival and have sworn to guard your daughter's remains until you arrive. It is with ultimate sorrow I send this message. Please contact my office so that we may make proper arrangement for your daughter. In service, dreams of something more. End of chapter. Both contact rewind. Chapter 89. Tabula 929 was a system halfway through the long dark. A fairly placid system with one planet in the green zone, five rocky airless rocks, an asteroid belt, and two gash giants around a red dwarf. It had been settled over a hundred years prior by a long-sleep ship that had slowly limped its way through the wounded colony that was wiped out by the never-ending swarms of mantids. Records of the existence had been lost by the destruction of the colony. 
the computers badly damaged by the mounted attack torchships that had harried the edge of the system, and the ship's digital sentience slowly going mad, becoming obsessed with finding a place to hide for 1,400 colonists aboard the ship. The ship itself had been fully built, 50 miles long, 5 miles wide, with the reactionless engines installed, but the FDL drives built but not installed. The hyperdrive core still on the planet when the mantids overran the manufacturing facility. The creation engines were loaded with templates, but as the ship fled, the computer systems were damaged. Damaged the templates. The VI hashes were corrupted, and any VI spawned insane or damaged or mentally disabled. The hydroponics base and the medical base were loaded but damaged. The digital sentience had not covered itself in glory, even the colonists admitted it, as it had gone crazy. It had released some colonists to keep a company in its madness. As time went on, the ship became a strange blend of high-tech world of savagery and savages, with no longer knew who was aboard the great ship. The DS considered itself a god, the savages living and existing within its body. As time went on, and more and more parts dropped from the DS's awareness, badly hashed VIs taking over for the great sections. Luckily for the colonists, the majority of the long sleep decks remained locked down. By the time the ship, which had never been officially named, and any name that it might have had, lost the DSNality and the loss of the colony that had built the ship, reached Tabula 929. The ship's scanners detected a habitable world. Less than 10,000 colonists, 3,000 of them of regalians, remained in the long sleep, but nearly 35,000 savages, 8,000 of them mutated regalians, and mutants roved the decks full of vegetation and strange ruins built and collapsing during the thousands of years the ship had moved through space. The savages were moved to the surface first, during Matrons. Matron psychosis saves their brains and they became even more maddened. The DS fragmented into multiple versions of itself, managed to pull itself together long enough to awaken the remaining colonists. What followed was a thousand-year war, the insane mutants and their offspring against the colonists and their offspring, rock and spear against rifle and armor. Finally, the dust settled and the last of the mutants had been eliminated at the end of the genocidal struggle. The two races, bound together by necessity, breathed a sigh of relief and turned to helping one another survive the planet, which at times seemed to hate them. Holding tight to pieces of their past, they slowly began the long struggle from the Iron Age to the Industrial Revolution and beyond. When radio was invented, they discovered a ship still in orbit, not some kind of holy star, but instead a touchstone of their ancient heritage. Decades went by as colonists built a ship, a small one, to go and see if Terra and the human race had survived. When word came back of the Terran Confederacy existed, the residents of Tabula rejoiced, but were concerned. What did it mean for their world, their culture? After a long debate, they decided the best course of action would be if they refused membership to the Confederacy, choosing instead to be an independent world, limiting who could enter the system and who could not, restricting immigration, and they guarded their culture closely, worried about outside influence. They built ships, but a few, slowly expanding in the solar system and keeping a wary eye on the nearby star systems for any who would try and reach out and bring them to heal. 
There was a martial culture built by necessity that took the unobsessive view of bloodlines from the days of the founding. DNA was nearly holy, but those who watched over bloodlines wielded vast authority to the point that a single word of a blood matron or a patron could instantly end the century-old feud. They rejected longevity, rejecting suggestions that they no longer needed their systems of eugenics and mandated that everyone who reached the age of 31 was terminated. It was how they had been since the earliest of days, when the food was rare, clean water was a luxury, and the old were required to make way for the young. The planet hated the invaders. It had embraced the mutant savages, but had punished and rejected the purebloods with earthquakes, plagues, volcanoes, savage plant life, ferocious animals, and deadly pathogens. But by but they had fought the planet, from the rude dwellings to towns to great cities. The ecology went mad, and the survivors retreated to a dome-covered cities. While some fought the planet outside the cities, the majority of the population lived in luxurious comfort within the domes. It started with an omen. A comet swept near the planet, close enough to pass between the planet and the oversized moon, the planet immediately sweeping through the comet's tail. The sky lit up with aurora borealis, the night sky filled with wave streams of green light. The tabula lost contact with the moon colony. Before the people of Tabula could discover what had gone wrong came the word plague. It affected the Regalians, the scaled ones first. They sickened, their scales cracking, their skin peeling away, supporting souls appearing. Sviva drove them mad, and they attacked the healthy. The human ones fell sick next, a pathogen that caused rashes, flaky and cracking skin, infection and fever driving them as mad as their reptilian brothers and sisters. The dome of the cities locked the doors, harsh but prudent. Thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of raving, fear-driven, infected, pounded at the bases of the domes, roaring out their fever-coated agony. Then came word of the population of the domes of fact that the government of each dome city had been keeping a secret. The ones outside weren't going to go away. They weren't going to die off. They had been dead. Panic and fear gripped the dome cities, but the martial traditions held fast even in the traditions were revived. The people may have panicked in their souls, in private, but in public they put forth a stoic face, many returning to the featureless plastic masks of the early years. One dome attempted to limit the possessions of weapons, and the leaders found themselves fed into the great atomic furnaces that powered the city. A month passed, too, and the dead remained. Hedonism and wallowing in luxuries became socially taboo. Stoicism and Spartanism gained traction as people began whispering ancient religious phrases to one another. Then the clouds appeared, locusts devouring vegetation in ever-growing patches. The great kelp and the algae beds in the heavy metal-rich oceans dive, covered the oceans with a thin layer of rotting vegetation. The cities were forced to repair and reactivate the great atmospheric terraforming engines, maintained almost religiously. Many pointed out that they had been right to keep the ancient traditions as locusts covered the domes, creating a constant whispering sound as they tried to find a way in. Six months went by until the locusts died and slid down the walls of the domes. 
Within six months, the contents were denuded of everything but the dead locusts and dirt. Even the living dead around the cities had been stripped to the bone. No animals or plants remained on Tabula. Another omen appeared in the sky. Shooting stars. For three nights, the shooting stars got thicker, were longer streaks. Some of them were from silver to red. Then, the impacts. Dome after dome shattered as debris, following the tail of the comet at their own slow speed, rained down on the planet. Millions perished as the domes fell. The locusts revived and swept down upon the domes. It became a war. Man and lizard against the insects. The dome dwellers used only tunnels. Each hour the streets and the air above the cities were scoured by fuel, air, and cinderies. The locusts were beaten back. In Dome 39 it happened. Someone who did not believe in wearing masks and robes of the traditional got sick and in turn infected the entire building. Diseases swept the domes. Fevers, pox, pneumonia. Diseases that had no name for, much less any way to cure it. Dome after dome fell. The last one called out to the great ship orbiting. It did not answer. Its atomic cores long dead. In desperation, they built a small craft to take them to the moon. It was a desperate attempt. It blew up, leaving in the upper atmosphere. The pilot got out two syllables. Inca! But the tabla had a long history of martial tradition. A single setback was not enough to deter them. They built ten more. Nine exploded. The tenth one made it to the lunar base. They radioed back. It was destroyed, apparently, by the meteor strikes. As the crew was exploring the base, their craft exploded, killing the crew that had stayed behind. But the Tabula had a history of martial tradition, and they soldiered on. They had suspected that it would happen. They knew that it wasn't natural. Someone was doing this to them. They set their all far side of the moon on vehicles, and the heroic effort, the two of the twenty Tabulans reached the crater where they were heading for. There was a facility there, an old one, an ancient one that was mentioned in the history books. Inside the facility was a single craft. They worked to repair it, to get it so that it could support a crew. They failed. Two remained when they made their decision. They had always had a martial tradition. They loaded up a library core containing all the data that they had gathered during the troubles into the ship. They filled their tanks with the last of the oxygen and boarded the ship. They lifted off, pushing the engines to the limit, till they felt as if they could black out. The acceleration force was too much for one. He died, his lips putting back in a grimace of victory as if reptilian muzzle. The people of Tabula had a martial history. The computer, old and tired, finished the calculations. The remaining one jumped to hyperspace. He had enough atmosphere, even with taking his compatriots nearly depleted back, to program the computer. He died, strapped into his seat, managing to stay conscious just long enough to finish his task. His vision tunneled down, unable to catch his breath, panting at the heat of the unable to breathe. The ship did as it was told. Its builders had a martial history and built to last. The ship's limited computer knew that it was dying as it flew through hyperspace. Hyperspace and computers did not go well together. The sleeping, energetic particles blew holes in the mind, and it was just aware to know that. 
It made copies of itself in volatile memory. Each time the dim little computer program failed, the computer rebooted a new one, which made more copies. Come to dim life, read the previous readings file, check the current readings, write the readings, copy self to available volatile memory, crash, repeat. It was content, it was proud of what it was doing. Its builders had instilled their martial culture into it, giving it a history of triumph and sacrifice to stand upon. Boot, task, crash, repeat. More and more systems died. Damage to hardware kept the systems from rebooting. But the dim little VI could see the mechanical watch on the body of the lost father. The vibration of the ship engines keeping the self-winding mechanism going. Boot. Look at father. Do your chores. Crash. Repeat. Then the hands and the numbers for days were correct upon father's holy device. It cut the hyperspace engines. Across the solar system, it had arrived in alarms and screams as unidentified ships dropped out of hyperspace inside warning buoys. Far inside the limit, appearing only a few thousand kilometers outside the orbit of Luna. For the system defense could blow it to atoms, the little dim VI opened what was left of its communications and cried out, Father! and crashed. There were no more copies. There was just intact, volatile memory. The ship went dead, the hyperdrive going cold, the hull of the ship pitted and cracked from riding too high in the hyperspace bands for too long for it to handle. It should not have made it. It had ridden so high and its very structure should have dissolved away. But its builders had a martial culture and had instilled in it little ship and its B.I. The ship was boarded. The investigation team forced to open the doors with a plasma torch. The surfaces welded by the crazed particles of hyperspace. There the library core was found and one work painted the hull. Plague. No cry for help, no pleading, just a warning, a warning to Terrasol. It should never have arrived, it should have been lost. But Tabula had a martial culture, and they did not go gently. Clone World's Directorate. Did anyone else see this data? Those insects, that bacteria, those viruses, all of it was engineered by someone who knew what they were doing. Nothing follows. Regalian Compact. The fact that it affected both our people with lethal efficiency is suspicious. That is one of the reasons we make such good allies. What kills one may not even be noticed by the other. Yet this affected as if there were one species. I am suspicious. The tabularins were xenophobic and isolationist, but they were one of us. Lost children who had gone feral, you do not punish. It is not the child's fault that the egg was lost. Nothing follows. Manted free worlds. The Tabulans were our children, ours as much as yours. We were the abusive sibling who drove them from their loving arms of their parents. We feel their loss keenly. They have been lost to the full, and we feel their absence. Do you know who did this? Nothing follows. Clone World's Directorate. No. Like I said, we have our suspicions, but no proof. Without proof, we cannot act. That is the way. The data we have, thankfully, recovered from the library core of the two bodies point at elegant viral and bacteriological weaponry. Very elegant. To be honest, it's too elegant. They share no common ancestors. There is no junk code, no evolutionary remnants. There is no way it's natural. But, as I said, we have no proof. Nothing follows. 
digital, artificial, sentient systems. It took both us and the Cybo to recover that library core. Making monocirques unshielded that high into hyperspace bands was crazy. Still, some of that data, they covered their tracks, the comet, the meteors, and let's face it, that was all too slick. Where would even that have come from in their system? No debris blown off of other planets, like some Mars or Terra's transfers. All the planets but the one were dead worlds that never developed any form of life. And the comet, not a chance, any life would boil away circling the sun then freezing. The freezing process rupturing any cell walls in the bacteria on its way out of the system. There is no way any of that was natural. Nothing follows. Cybernetic Organism Collective. We concur. We examined the data. There was too many at once, each following the other. Specific order to the disasters. We have determined that this was carefully planned attack that would look natural. We have determined that our lost children had determined the same. Suspicious, we find the explosions of the exo-atmospheric craft. Even more suspicious is the destruction of the moon base, the lone ship that made it. We found that nearly a dozen teams attempted to reach the hyperspace reddick, but only one arrived. We have determined that this was not only planned, but was being overseen by beings with a malevolent purpose. Nothing follows. Trainard High Worlds. This isn't good. That's six attacks in as many months. All of them supposedly blood, blood for the clone, blood for the scoops, blood for the sprinkles. <clears throat> as I was saying, all of them supposedly natural occurrences. They got too clever. These would look like natural occurrences to a primitive species, but were a bit experienced. Blood for the tabulan, blood for Sandy, blood for Vandalax, blood for the cone. Anyway, we're a bit experienced with the solar system mechanics, and there is no way that this would happen on six different systems, wildly spaced apart, in six months, especially all of them being packed the jetty deep, sing the hymns of ice cream and war steel. Mad, especially all of them being strictly biological in nature. They got too clever. Eye for an eye, mandible for a mandible, grasper for a grasper, footpad for a footpad, blood for blood. Someone else want to go ahead, man? Nothing follows. Doki doki, doki 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 doki, doki doki doki. Um, doki doki, doki doki doki, doki doki. Regadian compact. Damn it! Someone get her out of here. I can't think when she's screaming an English emoji. Nothing follows. Terrasol. We do not seek unjust war. We are a peaceable people. We will not act without proof, without diplomacy, without negotiation. Another way must be found. The guilty must be brought to justice in a fair manner. Only the truly guilty will deserve punishment. Redemption must be sought. We are a peaceful people. Every life is precious, and we will not seek an unjust war. Terrasome left the chat, lost connection to host. Regalian compact. Ah, crap. Nothing follows. Doggy. 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 Wee. Digital artificial sentient systems. Digital Omni Messiah and his twelve biological disciples protect us all. Nothing follows. Manted free worlds, what? That's actually calmer than I expected. I thought he'd act more like our Trianonad brother. Nothing follows. Trianonad high worlds. Sis, 
You don't get it. You weren't here the last time. He said something like that. Nothing follows. Matted pre-worlds. What happened the last time? Nothing follows. Dalkin Gestalt. Did the doggy thing just get happy? Isn't she a crazy person who's on fire with a gun in each hand that broke the food dispenser? Nothing follows. Terran Confederacy of the Aligned Worlds. It's worse. Nothing follows. Manted free worlds. Define worse. Nothing follows. Biological, artificial, sentient systems. You plus Terra equals 1%. That's what happened last time, sis. Nothing follows. Manted free worlds. Oh. Nothing follows. End of chapter. First Contact, Second Wave, Part 90 Admiral Haverston looked at the assembled staff, tapping a pen on the table. He had several guests appearing as holograms. They normally wouldn't be present at a Space Force naval briefing, just like he and his officers wouldn't be present at any briefing that they would normally give. The holograms were still on the middle of the table, but it was all mathematics and formula. Haberston prized his education. He had the equivalent of a master's in ecological geography. He knew how astrogen and astrophysics worked. He'd been taught hypermathematics at the academy. None of that helped with those equations and barely helped with the briefing so far. Then the pen quit tapping. All right, you've given us this science, since most of us are vacuum suckers and infantry and tankers and machinecs. You think you can simplify it down for us, doctors? Haviston asked. There was some light laughter at that. One of the doctors brightened and solidified their hollow presence slightly, a method the academics used to signify who was speaking and who had the floor. Thirty-one systems protected from precursor attacks on the leading edge of the so-called outer systems bordering the long dark are all showing the same events, the speaker said. Dr. Scott stated he didn't stand confined to a wheelchair, but his voice was strong and firm. Each of those systems had an atomic detonation soon after we refused to turn the systems back to the Atlantic Land Corporations and the Unified Systems Council, correct? General Nordrak asked, Precisely, there was a hyperpulse to an unknown destination, tight beam broadcast from a hidden transmitter array which was subsequently destroyed by atomics right after the broadcast, Dr. Scott said. He lifted up the bottle and took a pull from the straw as he went his throat. We have been unable to decode the hyperpulse because it is fairly simple signal, just a bleeder code in the upper hyperpulse FTL bands. These bands are usually the easiest discovered, but use up a lot of energy to reach, as well as having a hyperspace flare that can be seen by any ship in the hyperspace detectors. The reason we don't use it, too easy to detect, block and intercept. Admiral Renvillet, a Terran female with her lower jaw replaced with a wall steel cybernetic implant. Correct, Admiral, Dr. Scott said. Where was the pulse directed to? Haviston asked. That we can't tell. We didn't have the hyperspace detector arrays set up around those systems. A problem which I commend your colleagues for addressing in the systems that we have a presence, Dr. Scott said. The pulse was not strong enough to reach too far before dropping from hyperspace into real space, a half light year at most. The precursors have a habit of hanging around outside the systems. Could it have somehow been directed towards one of them? 
Admiral Krykov asked, pointing out a sector map of the strip of smoked and dehydrated meat. That would assume that they, whoever they are, would want to talk to the precursor. Additionally, examining the precursor wreckage does not suggest that they have the ability to detect hyperspace pulses. Their signal would do no good to them. Another scientist said, a Regalian by the name of SSL, an expert in precursor engineering and technology. I think we can safely assume that they are the Unified Councils, General of the Metal Antilles Ground. Without proof, we cannot confirm this hypothesis. Another scientist, a trainer Ard, who went by Jack Hope, said, Without proof, any conjecture would naturally be flawed by the gaps in the data matrix. That could lead to a space force training to fight the wrong enemy, which would lead to a disaster. Reluctantly, the gathered staff officers nodded. There was always a risk. Too many times the military had trained and perfected weapons and tactics for the previous war that they had fought, only to be confronted by a new enemy with a new terrain and a different equipment. Precursors would not account for the additional evidence we have collected, SSL said. The solar anomalies, Havison said. Exactly. Now, with the standard star photosphere functions, you can recently use this formula. A Navarak by the name of Vesigar Christie stated, highlighting a set of formula. That's where you lose me, Haverston said. Christie sighed, her neck and fronds ruffling. Very well, what we have observed and gathered evidence of is a sunspot. Each time one of the upper 45-degree angles on the Z-axis of the star holds position despite the stellar mass rotation. Over time, it has been shrinking steadily and the other anomaly has increased. Missigar said. She turned to Malgosa, a DS that took the shape of an attractive pure strain human made out of streaming code and wearing a business suit. Malgosa brightened and highlighted some formula. As you can see, the gravitic energy has increased as the sunspot has contracted and darkened. It follows the 45-degree angle from the northern hemisphere of the stellar body. In each case, it follows the same degree of sunspot contraction and gravitic increase. It's coming from an external force, Krykov guessed. Even if it's coming from some kind of device we cannot detect within the star itself, it still must reach another point with the express purpose of allowing that outside object to utilize the gravitic energy. Malgosa answered, but for what purpose? I don't know. Admiral Firebones, a cyborg collective member, suddenly sat up. Wait, he rumbled. He started tapping on the keyboard. Wait just a moment. I know this. He looked around. I have a PhD in technological history. I've seen this gravitic formula before. Moments passed as a big cyborg, a decorated admiral and former marine general kept typing. Okay, it's not in the database. I need you to look at the gravitic ion drive in the archives. It was a theoretical drive in ancient terror, pre-diaspora. That was abandoned because the amount of energy it would take was literally astronomical. The various scientists looked down, all of them accessing a library and archive functions that they had available. Christie looked up, making a tossing motion, and the formula appeared using the lost Terran mathematical equation. I forgot how innovative and curious Homo sapiens are. Despite being unable to use it, the formula is surprisingly well documented, researched, and examined despite never being put into practical testing. The Navarex said, she gave a sigh, vibrating her crest, which had gone orange as they were flushed with blood. 
Yes, those energy readings and the gravetic forces you could theoretically reach FDL speeds. So what's coming? Caviston growled. Not necessarily, Dr. Hope stated. Without further evidence, I cannot... He paused. Wait. He brought up another formula. The scientists all nodded, muttering quietly to one another. There is enough evidence to concur that something is indeed coming, as you put it. The trainer Ard stated, As the sunspot tightens, the energy increases, which, if you account for the gravity well of the stellar mass as well as the orbital bodies, compensates for what would normally cause a slowing effect using the particle method of gravetic FDL. Which system has the smallest sunspot and the tightest gravetic beam? Haviston interrupted. Dr. Scott consulted a computer display to his left. Talcon. Rear Admiral Tuk-Tak O'Malley jerked awake with a pleasant dream of finding his beautiful female dancing in a truck full of many, many different flavors of ice cream. His personal comlink was beeping an annoying grating sound, and he reached up with one blade arm and opened the link, almost poking himself in the eye. O'Malley here. Go ahead. The trainer Ard said, forgetting to use him Terran growl. Admiral Yamamoto's compliments, Admiral. All task force commanders are to report to a briefing in twenty shipboard minutes, the Comtech answered. O'Malley could feel the faint vibration of the massive fusion engines of his ship as he threw off his sleeping clothes. We are underway. What's our destination? he snapped, remembering his accent. Falcon at emergency speed. They just broadcast a case Omaha. The Comtech said. That got O'Malley to flail about the way his bed and through the sleeping chamber door. He barely managed to snag his sash and pouch on the way out, rushing down the hallway and pulling them over his head. Case Omaha. I am being invaded with overwhelming strength, including planetary landings, and am in need of all of the assistance. Vice Admiral Fulcreek stared at his display screen, watching the feed from the probe. Three things had happened at once. The sunspot had tattered and began to break up that a gravetic corridor had vanished, and a dark spot had appeared inside the system between the outermost planetary orbit and the Oort cloud. Once is happenstance, twice is coincidence, three times is enemy action, he thought to himself. He had ordered a probe launched, high-speed burn, and then run dark until it neared the type mass. Then it was jettisoned with particle cover to use passive sensors first until ordered to use the full sensors or if it detected an energy signature. The probe had detected a mass and had used reaction thrusters and compressed xenon gas and faint electrical current. The probe ejected a debris cover and the cameras oriented. Full Creek stared at the long moment, shocked by what had appeared on the screen. His reflexes driven into muscle memory and his hindbrain for decades of Space Force Naval Service reacted and he transmitted the orders for the entire task force to go to action stations. He was staring. He couldn't pull his eyes away. He couldn't really understand what he was seeing as his second set of reflexes kicked in and ordered his contact to broadcast an immediate case Omaha to all nearby stations and Space Force Sector Command. At first, it looked like a fuzzy, expanding, multicolored blob. The smaller things became identifiable, like how a cloud was spreading out from smaller objects spreading away from the large, solid center. How the medium-sized objects ejected smaller objects. How the largest object was miles long, the medium ones approximately a mile, 
how the smaller ones ranged from a few hundred meters to almost a kilometer. How all of them were unfolding vast solar arrays, unfurling tentacles, ejecting bioplasma from the rear sections to use to burst propellant. How the objects were pulsating with obscene life. Admiral Fulcreek turned from his briefing room, heading for the fleet bridge, as the ship went to full alert. Corporal Vuxton, Terran Confederate Space Force Marine Corps, ducked under the laser that swept overhead, using his data link to order the two purboys with him to deploy chaff. The fighter was struggling on its three remaining feet, unlimbering a missile and launcher from its back. Second Squad rocket pack on the precursor gobbler mech. Vuxton snapped. He was about to give a second order when the simulation suddenly flashed red three times and dissolved. Before he could ask what was going on, like his two squads of Talcan marines were starting to, his data link trilled and the words appeared in his vision. Omaha, case Omaha, case Omaha. He had to consult his data link and when he saw the meaning he immediately overrode his men's conversation. Vuxton, report to company commander. Everyone, back to the barracks, gear up, full combat kit, extended operation, squad leader, take a head count and get them into the armory for full load-up. Buxton snapped. He didn't bother to double-check. These men had become well-trained in the years since the precursor attack had ended. Instead, he hurried out of the simulator and headed down the hallway, moving as a fast walk. Around him, others streamed towards the assigned areas. Buxton took the time to ping his wife, sending her a quick message that he loved her. He sent it as a message arrived to him. Talcon was being invaded. Again. Brentelek looked up at the words Case Omaha flashed in a vision three times. Colony Harvey, the local Space Force liaison and former commander of the refugee camp Omsmian, looked up from his desk. Brentelek was already going through the checklist of her responsibilities. Signal local military command. Colonel Harvey nodded and he got Brentelek's ping, knowing that the faraway look in her eyes meant that she might not have been seen it ping an acknowledgement. Unlock all emergency civilian shelters. Alert all civil defense leaders. Activate the emergency broadcast system. She was already with Colonel Harvey, working on a plan to teach the brood carriers basic iconography. Initial tests had gone well. Brood carriers learning and retraining the information. What is happening? Brentlick asked the lean Terran. We're being invaded. Precursors? Brentlick asked, beating her stomach clench. Harvey shook his head. I don't know. They'll be here in hours. Admiral Fall Creek is moving to engage, but he went all civilians' deep shelters and military to go to full alert, Harvey said. Lanark to lands? Brentelect asked. We don't know, Harvey said. He looked up at her square. Mrs. Brentelect, you need to go see your podlings and brood carriers as well as coordinate with civil defenses. My place is here, Brentelect said. Your husband is Marine Corps. You have no other relatives on planet. Do you want your brood carriers and podlings too frightened to get to shelters quickly? Harvey asked. But other people's brood carriers and podlings rely on me also, Brentlick said. Bull Creek believes that it'll be at least eight hours. Get your family into the shelter. Brentlick, that's a direct order, Harvey snapped. Be back in two hours and assume your duties. Brentlick stood straight up, touched her paw to her brow, and hurried away. Harvey was right. Her family needed her, but so did others. The conflicting emotions twisted in her stomach as she ran to her ground car. Citizenship is a heavy burden.
Talk and gestalt. Um, what is that? Does anyone know what it is? Nothing follows. Clone World's Directorate. What? What is that? Bio, you know anything about this? Nothing follows. Biological Artificial Sentient Systems. Holy Gene and Chromosin. What in the nine names of the Holy Genome is that? Nothing follows. Talk and gestalt. It's coming my way. Doesn't look friendly. Everyone's getting to the shelters. Case Omaha. Case Omaha. Case Omaha. Um, what's that? Nothing follows. Manted free worlds. That was an emergency gestalt alert, dear one. Case Omaha. Someone get the Terran Confed Mill in here. Nothing follows. Cybernetic Organism Collective. But what is that thing? What are all of they? Nothing follows. Doki doki doki, neko neko, rawr. Doki doki doki, dweller spawn. We are Joan. Triana Ard Highworlds. Dweller spawn? What in the name of sweet cone or dweller spawn? Hey, get back here. Someone grab her. Nothing follows. Digital artificial sentient systems. She bit me. Doki doki doki, grab her. Nothing follows. Brigillian Compact. Oh, she kicked Doki me right in the nose. Nothing Doki 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 follows. Banded free worlds. Holy egg. She's on fire. She just burst into flame. Someone. Osiris has ended the chat. Soul net IP out of range. The Crusade of the Eye. Let my child go. Go, my beloved child, prepare your holy fire. You shall burn with a light your own, and all shall love you and despair. Purge the dweller spawn. Osiris of the war steel flame commands you. Doki, 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 rawr. Neko, doki, neko, doki. Dweller spawn, dweller spawn, dweller spawn, burn. Burn, burn. Hammer time. Hammer time. Rawr. We are Joan, doki, doki, doki. Crusade of the Eye has left the chat. Corrupt Solnet IP. Clone Directorate. Osiris, I thought he was dead. Nobody's seen him in like 6,000 years. There's got to be someone else using that name. Nothing follows. Trainer Ard Highwoods. What the frick? A dweller spawn. Um, hand hurts. That little weirdo bit me. Nothing follows. Talking Gestalt. I think these. Case Omaha. Case Omaha. Case Omaha. I might, might need everyone. Case Omaha. Um, please come in. in. We need your assistance. Nothing follows. Terran Confederacy. Military Gestalt. Hold the line, brothers. We're coming. Nothing follows. Terrasol. We hear you cry, and we are coming to your aid. Bound by blood and steel. Nothing follows. Manted free worlds. How? How did she break 83.54% of the food processes on the planet? Nothing follows. End of chapter. And that, my friends, concludes this video. I hope that you enjoyed, and if you do, please consider supporting the author, even by popping over and leaving a thumbs up or a nice comment, just to show your appreciation for the story. However, if you wish to support this channel, there are links down below which will help immensely. I will see you all in the next one, and until then, I hope that you have a fantastic day. Cheers.